floor seats for the Knicks. Couple models blowing kiss. They don't even wanna pick. Wanna lick up on a yeah. I done made a couple hits. Going hammer with a pick. God handed me the gift. Not to slam it for a brick. What's going on? Welcome to the All-American Chelsea Podcast. I am the captain. I am the leader. I am the legend of all things you see. All-American Chelsea, what's going on? It's your boy, Christian, coming back again to you. Live from beautiful Miami, Florida, in the good old U.S. of A. Monday, July 29th, 2019, your boy's coming at you again with another podcast, and this time I'm joined, we are joined, the family is joined by the legend, none other himself than Joe Tweedy. Oh my God, I can't wait for you guys to hear this episode. This guy blew my mind multiple occasions on you'll 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 see it i mean you'll see it you'll hear it you'll hear it i i can't wait for you guys to listen to this episode um and as a matter of fact i had to cut it short me i had to cut it short because joe was just getting warmed up joe was like joe was like a freight train once you get the wheels going man this man does not stop he's a force of nature he will not stop going and just spitting straight facts facts on top of facts on top of facts i i i had to cut it off i had to cut the episode short um because my my laptop was running out of hard drive space so i got to continue moving over files from my laptop to my main storage computer um to my main hard drive i have couple terabyte hard drive in my in my uh gaming rig in my bigger computer so i I move all my podcast files over there once i'm done but apparently i i haven't unloaded enough from the laptop so and and it's you know the laptop i think it's it's a microsoft surface 4 and all i use it for is recording the podcast um because it's mobile if i want to record at my at my office instead of at home for whatever reason i can do that as opposed to the gaming the gaming tower or whatever I, I didn't that stays home um but i i guess i didn't clean up enough space off of it so whatever it is what it is i'll just set it a transfer while i sleep or something but anyways what's going on everybody um Coming to you guys after the Reading versus Chelsea preseason match where Chelsea won 4-3. And, um, you know, we <sighs> this game was good because, one, we got a win, whatever, wins a win. But it um, there's a lot of things that Frank... A lot of issues that came up in this episode where Frank Lampard can really dive into and tweak and get it ready before uh, the season starts. But, I mean, we don't have too much time. The season starts. Can you guys believe it? It feels like it feels like we just it was just May. It feels like it was just the Europa League and, and the off season was just starting. And it were, that's it. August 13th. 
what we're what 15 days away something like that from the season starting i'm hearing myself i can't can't have that all right better so we are 15 days away from the season starting something like that whatever the number is i'm not mathematician or whatever but season starts that's it and it's time where you know these matches will start to count so today's match definitely brought up a lot of points a lot of things that uh frank lampard has you know has some work to do to get us going um and joe and i we kind of we we don't uh, you know truth be told i really wanted to get have uh to ask him questions and get a post-match review but we really don't get too 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 to dive too deep into the actual match because so many people sent in questions over twitter that um i just wanted to get those questions knocked out um and, but we do touch on on the match today uh thank you to everybody who sent in questions um so yeah so what else is new i started finally after talking so much shit about going to the gym. I got to go to the gym. I got to go to the gym. I finally made it to the gym uh, yesterday on Saturday. Felt good to get in there and to uh, throw some weight around. Um, I didn't go today. I wanted to go today, but I didn't go today. I'm going to definitely get it there tomorrow morning. Head to the gym tomorrow morning before I head to work. But it felt good, man. It felt good. Ran two miles on the treadmill. Uh, I knocked that out. I guess you know it's amazing. It's amazing what playing football uh, has done to my cardio. I, I guess I run more than two miles um, during these matches, and when I ran on the treadmill, I I didn't I didn't feel winded, and I was running at a good pace. I was running at I think I ended at six miles an hour, six miles an hour. And I didn't, I wasn't tired at, at much. Um, wasn't tired at all. Uh, shit. That's how I started the day. I ran two miles. No, I, the way I started is I went to the heavy bag and I put in about 10 minutes on the heavy bag. Uh, I'm going to be recording my heavy bag sessions because it's been a while. It's been a while since I've hit the heavy bag. Like about 15 years. Something like that. I think the last time I was really hitting the heavy bag consistently was like 2008. Right around there. Right around there. 2008. When I was training, hitting the heavy bag. And I really hadn't. Just, you know, since then, I really hadn't. Even though I was training, it's the, I focused my whole time from training MMA, training stand-up to 100% jiu-jitsu. So there was no really no need to to throw punches and kicks. But I don't know. I found my old boxing gloves. I found my wraps. And it kind of not necessarily lit the fire to spar or anything like that, but definitely it made me reminisce about hitting the heavy bag and just running through some combos and I can tell you one thing. Good thing. I wanted to record on Saturday morning uh, my 10-minute session hitting the bag. Thank God I didn't. Thank God I didn't. What a disaster. Oh, my God. I looked like a fish out of water. I looked like somebody that had no idea what they were doing. Um, I felt 
terrible. But, you know, I do want to record this next one because I know how bad I did. It can give me some film or whatever, some video, so I can critique what I'm doing and at least, you know, clean up my technique and skill or whatever like that. So I can at least look better or sharper or have more fun and be more creative on the bag. But I can't do that if my feet are out of place, if, um, you know, I'm not balanced and all that. So, so I, it was fun though. It was fun. But yeah, I did. My workout consisted of, I kept it light, man. I didn't want to be, I didn't, I, I don't believe in going into the gym and just, blowing it all out to your to you can't move i don't i i personally don't subscribe to that i'm not a bodybuilder i don't go into the gym to to look good on stage i go to the gym to be strong um to be as strong as i possibly can but also to be mobile to be fit uh i I, you know i don't i don't want to be heavy and 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 not necessarily heavy because of health wise but i like to play sports and if i'm too heavy i can't run as well so i supplement my playing you know playing sports with the gym so it helps me stay in shape so i can play the best that i can play not necessarily for a contract or anything like that no it's just for fun man just for fun i i i know how i am i I'm not going to have fun if I, I'm getting winded 10 minutes into the game. I can't have fun. Our games, we play for an hour. You know, on these six-on-six games that I play with my friends, we play for an hour. I not only play, we pay for, for an hour. These these fields that we go to are, are, are turf. I don't know how it is in other countries or anywhere else where it's at. But we pay to play. So... I want to get my money's worth. I want to run for an hour. I want to be able to run up and down the pitch, uh, you know, as many times as possible and play as much as possible because I love the game and I can only do that. I can only get the maximum amount of enjoyment if I am in shape. So that's what I use the gym for. Even when I was in high school, I hated it. Some guys just loved working out for the sake of working out. I don't, I don't, I don't like the gym like that. I, the gym is a place where I get stronger so I can do better in the things that I want to do. I can, you know, play sports that I want to play. I don't necessarily care about, you know, having, you know, the nicest looking pec, like my pecs being all swole up and my biceps and my tries and nothing like that. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily care for that. Um, I do. My weightlifting routine is very, very, you know, simple. I want my back strong because my lower back, I've had issues uh, going back 15 years with my back. I have lower back issues. So I want my back strong to support my back, to support the vertebrae. Um, I, I, I love the only real, I would say this, the only body part that I do like training are legs because it's kind of a flex. Yeah, I like training legs because my legs are really strong. So that's the only thing I really like to train. So... I enjoy squatting, but I keep, I keep, I keep my workouts pretty simple. Upper body must have benching and military press. Lower body must have squats. Those are the core and the foundation of my workouts. Um, so 
as from there, I've always, always, always have issues with pull-ups. So training pull-ups, training my back, lat pull-downs, um, lat like uh, shoulders, making sure like military presses, so my shoulders are strong. Going to the uh, going to the pull-up machine to do pull-ups, dips, stuff like that. You know. Um, so that's kind of how I keep it. I, I, my biceps, whatever I, I do curls, my tricep pull down, but I'm not necessarily my, like my workouts don't necessarily revolve around a bodybuilding, um, routine. I guess it would have to, if I have to say anything, I would be more like, uh, sh I would like more like strongman lifts, Olympic lifts, um, big compound movements as opposed to like, uh, isolation muscle group isolation so but I, I i do plan on recording some stuff while i'm at the gym and putting it up on social media whatever uh especially hitting the heavy bag especially hitting the heavy bag because if i'm recording that myself for me i might as well share it with my family and my friends and that's what you guys are so what else last night we had a good ufc uh it was a good card in canada i mean whatever it, 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 you know what it, it, we've had recently amazing cards so this one wasn't as good as the others but there's still great fights on there you had chris cyborg going uh three rounds versus um this girl what is her last name Sim stephanie her name is getting out my ufc app her name is pulling it out there main card felicia spencer felicia spencer looking like homer simpson versus mike tyson she, this girl is tough. Even though Cyborg got the win over her, this Felicia Spencer is absolutely tough. Um, she lost, but her stock still rises. You had who else on the court before card before I get on the get to the main event? Jeff Neal versus Nico Price. That was a fun, fun fight. You gotta love Nico Price. Such a a a, a guy that you want to root for. You want to root for Nico Price. He's always. Uh, a scrappy competitor and he also trains uh at american top team in coconut creek so local guy uh who else was on the card uh mark andre bernalt versus christoph jotko uh, that was a little bit of a sleeper uh olivier aubon moussier uh, aubin uh, mercier versus armand i can't say your last name whatever Olivier, I knew something was up when he showed up uh, in those Harry Potter circle glasses. I'm like, oh, brother, this guy's in for a long night. He's in for a long night with those Harry Potter glasses. But it was a good fight. And then finally, Max Holloway versus Frankie Edgar. Max Holloway gets the decision. I wouldn't say he dominated Frankie Edgar with a capital D, but he definitely dominated Frankie Edgar. Max Holloway. I was having this conversation with um, my sister who also watches the UFC. And I think 
Skill for skill, Max Holloway might be the best fighter in the UFC. This guy, especially in the striking department, he is lightning quick. Always, always perfect. His distance management is perfect, perfect, perfect every single time. And and I honestly believe that he might be the best fighter in the UFC. You guys, yes, I know John Jones is up there because what he does to his opponent, um, he just dismantles them. But he, Frankie looks. I mean, not Frankie. Max Holloway pretty much does the same, but on the feet, and he looks crisp. Max Holloway is a special, special character, special character, special fighter, um, and absolutely a Hall of Famer. Will be go down. Uh, as a Hall of Famer, if not, if he retired, walked away right now, he I, I I would say he's a Hall of Famer, and he's young. He's in his early twenties, or mid twenties, twenty seven, late twenties. He's twenty seven. He has another three years, four years, five years at the prime, 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 where he could even get get better. Um, for me, he's the best fighter in the UFC right now, hands down. No way, fans or butts about it. So. But I'm going to uh, wrap it up with the intro. Um, I'm going to bring Joe Tweedy on and enjoy, guys. This is a great podcast. This is a long one. This is a long one, so brace yourselves. This is a long, long episode. You're going to want to, you know, listen to it in sections, listen to it in parts, pick it up uh, today, put it down tomorrow, uh, break it up over the next couple of weeks. This is a long one. Uh, over two hours with Joe, uh, but every single second is enjoyable. Uh, so I'll talk to you guys on the back end, and uh, that's it. Yeah, what's going on, everybody? I'm here. We are joined by the man himself, known as Whisper. They whisper about him in the corners. They have you heard of this man? He goes by the name of Joe Lambo Tweedy, Joe, a.k.a. Ferrari, Joe, a.k.a. the most connected man in Chelsea history, Joe, a.k.a. the people's champ, also known as Joe motherfucking Tweedy! <laughs> I might have to have that as my alarm clock waking me up every single morning. Now. Joe Tweedy, my brother, how are you today? I'm really good, thank you. Yeah, lovely weather here in Copenhagen. We've actually got some sunshine, which is nice. So, yeah, and uh, obviously just uh, off the back of a kind of, I don't know, fairly shaky Chelsea win, but a win's a win. So, yeah, all good with me today. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Listen, Joe, yesterday in the video, I... um. I said that you uh, have regular conversations with Roman Abramovich, Marina, Petr Cech, um, Frank Lampard, and all those guys. Please, um, let's just keep that between ourselves. I know I said it, but you don't have to, um, you know, since I already said it, you don't have to kind of like reiterate that, all right? You're, you know, or course, say yeah. anything out of, the, out of the contrary. So, all right, everybody, we're here. With Joe Tweedy, if you guys don't know Joe Tweedy, um, Joe, I always describe you as the pretty much the same way. One of us, a fan who has ascended to another 
plat like another level. Um, and the way he did that was through your writing over years and years and years of uh, writing articles based off of your your observations of uh, of Chelsea and. To the point where people within Chelsea, within the industry, professional footballing took notice. Um, and here you are. As Joe Tweedy. I mean, Joe, I got it pretty much, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I I started off really, I've always, I suppose I've always enjoyed writing and working in, in finance, working with numbers. I always found writing was a good outlet for me to to not just be sort of a, a one-dimensional kind of binary robot in terms of looking at numbers and coming to conclusions. So I've always obviously been a, been a huge uh, fan of football, played a lot when I was younger, um, coaching as well. And, and the natural step for me, I think, was, was just, just to sort of start writing about it. And, you know, I think it's been, oof, I don't know, seven, eight, nine years of writing now. But, uh, yeah, you know, the focal point of my article is I've never really been one of these people that's done sort of match reports or focused too heavily on, on match breakdowns. I've always been interested in the sort of the business aspects of football, the, the mm-hmm. way that football clubs are run, the way that uh, they're structured, the sort of the, the architecture, the design behind what you see on the pitch. And, you know, some, some sort of notable articles got me some pretty decent uh, connections and you know just sort of from my from my day-to-day job networking is a very big important piece of what I do so you know once those opportunities came I, I managed to secure some pretty decent uh, sort of friendships within football people who who work directly with Chelsea people within Chelsea itself over a, a number of years who have been coaches who have been analysts and scouts and, and people that I've been able to to sort of form uh, sort of bonds with and have conversations with and it sort of continued to this day. I mean, at the moment, I think probably mostly due to time constraints, I'm I'm sort of midway through an MBA at the moment, so my, my kind of writing uh, requirements or my, my sort of time to write is a little bit uh, less than what it would be normally. I'm probably mostly found on on podcasts these days, but I do still tend to try and get a a couple of pieces out. And I think maybe the thing that that I probably personally take pride in is that you know you see. A lot of people will bang out kind of articles almost every two two days or three days, whatever. And I don't know how they do that. I don't know how they do that. I mean, it's for me as well. I mean, I I put a, a real sort of amount of time into sort of researching, you know, whether that is consulting with with people I know, so scouts, agents, uh, coaches, etc., within the game, or doing my own kind of reading and research or my own experiences. Um, so you know, whenever I sort of publish something, it's it, there's normally been. You know, quite a quite a number of hours of, of work has gone in beforehand before I even start writing. So, you know, for me, it's not just a question of, you know, smash out a couple of articles on, you know, hundred reasons you won't believe that Christian Pulisic is going to be great or some other nonsense sort of headline. But it's yeah, I've always tried to be a little bit more intelligent with with my analysis. And you know, as you say, you know, it's it's got me in a position where I'm I'm fortunate enough to have be able be able to have conversations with uh, people in, in in the game. And you know, obviously that is something that I I, I don't really talk about too much on social media because it's it's not really my style. You know, privately, I don't mind um, sort of sharing some of the insights and stuff I've got with people who are in the. Hold on, everybody. Hold on, Joe. Let me stop you there. Don't for anybody listening to this. Don't think you're gonna hit up Joe and he's gonna show you, you know, the goods. All right, that ain't gonna happen. You gotta earn your way. I haven't even. I've I've earned. All right. So to the, being an insider with Joe Tweedy, there's five different levels. All right. There's seven rings. 
I've acquired the smallest ring. I get to see the <laughs> lowest level. I don't get to see the highest level just yet, just the lowest level. And I've hustled and put in work to get to where I'm at. So don't you dare think that you're going to come into this DMing Joe like, Joe, show me the messages that you've had with such and such and this and that or the other. It ain't happening. All right. Continue. Joe. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And, you know, I think I've never really kind of portrayed myself as some sort of, you know, glorified in the know or it's, it's not really sort of the, the kind of MO between, you know, kind of the MO behind my sort of social media stuff. So, um, yeah, you know, I've, I've always been very respectful of the information that I've I've been sent and then the people that I'm able to talk to and, and conversations that I'm able to have. So, you know, I think that that probably in terms of, I don't want to say success because at the end of the day, it's just social media, but in terms of, uh, you know, sort of networking that I've done, yeah, a lot of it has just been been done sort of on trust and knowing that, you know, if someone tells me something in confidence, it, it doesn't really, it doesn't really go any further. So, yeah, I mean, it's a, a fairly long-winded, long-winded introduction yeah. into into where I am at the moment. But uh, yeah, it, it's it's just one of those things. That I think, you know, sometimes people often try and rush into finding their kind of niche in writing or social media or whatever. Um, you know, in terms of sort of acquiring a good network of people and, and getting some some decent connections, you know, it takes time. You know, I've, I've built up a, a network over, you know, six, seven years. It's, it's not something that happens overnight. So, you know, for anyone listening who wants to get into writing or analysis or whatever, you know, it, it can take time and that's with a very patient approach. And also it wasn't sort of my main focus as well. So, you know, it might be up to something that maybe in, in sort of two, three, maybe four years, you can get a decent network of people to bounce ideas off of and talk to. But I think the one thing that I would say to particularly young people who want to become writers and whatever is, you know, it's it's all about being patient with your approach and, and letting things happen organically. Don't try and, and force, the, uh, force the situation. Beautifully put. Um, Joe, I guess... You know, I, I've been kicking this idea. I mean, before we get into uh, first the questions that people have sent in uh, on my Twitter account for Joe um, and to get into the post-match review and kind of Joe's thoughts for the rest of the season. I, I've been having this idea, uh, not, not a necessarily idea, but just like a, a question when it comes to professional football um, and, 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 and a buddy of mine. One of my best friends and I, who is a United supporter, has been kind of thinking the same. Joe, so you'd be the perfect person to ask. Do you think, um, I guess with Chelsea, we'll look at Chelsea, we'll look at the Premier League uh, more so than international football, but more so with the Premier League. Do you think clubs have kind of realized that the main revenue, a larger revenue stream can is now with the... Um, what happens outside outside of the pitch more so than what happens on the pitch, and 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 and, and kind of just to uh, give an example of what I mean. Football, in my opinion, the, the these clubs were put together, and in in they these clubs were put together in the beginning, uh, as games were they can play amongst you know friends would play amongst another friends and and organically people started coming up to coming to watch. And then you charge for people to come and watch because it's something that people want to watch and whatever. Like, you can make money off of it. And it's kept going that way. And the more people that want to watch your product or watch your game, uh, the more money you make. Uh, that's how entertainment works. You, you entertain people. They pay money for your entertainment. And whatever. Like, you make money. But it seems like 
because you can make more money off the pitch, then what happens on the pitch becomes a little less relevant. It's like I, I may not be using all the right words and, and my sentence is clunky to get out the idea, but I hope that you understand what I'm what I mean in my question. Do you see from your point of view as somebody with an eye in business? Is that how like football is going? Modern football is going where where what happens between the 22 men on the field doesn't matter as much as what happens in the boardrooms and in the meetings with the executives. Um, in advertisers. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a it's a really sort of fair point to make. And you know, one of the interesting things that Chelsea have done strategically over the past couple of years is they have specifically targeted. I, I don't want to say B list um, advertisers, but if you look at some of the the brand sponsors that we have, you know, Hyundai on the sleeves, we've got Yokohama tires. Um, the uh, Carabao on, on the training kit. These are not the Red Bulls. They're not the Pirellis. They're not the, you know, the top end cars stuff. Chelsea have deliberately looked at particularly the Asian market and have gone for sort of second tier um, sort of people to, to be show, uh, match sponsors and, 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 and sleeve sponsors and training kit sponsors and all this sort of stuff. It, it's a deliberate ploy um, because, you know, if you're approaching a, a Red Bull or someone who, um, Pirelli or one of these other big, big sort of players. Chevy, like United. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know they're 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 going to pay less for the the exposure. You know, there's there's more of a, a desire for someone like Hyundai to be linked with with Chelsea than there is I don't know, let's say Porsche or or some other mm-hmm. you know more maybe more you know elite car brands. So I think Chelsea have particularly over the last couple of years taken a very Strategic, and it's actually probably a very smart move in terms of sort of trying to crack the the Asian market by targeting familiar household names in in that space, which may be perceived, let's say, from from maybe more of a Western perspective, as being sort of a little bit more middle tier in terms of sponsorship. And then you know you see the rise of these uh, specific um, sort of social media accounts. So the the Chelsea American uh, social media account that's been going now for I think about eighteen months. There's obviously a lot more attempt to engage globally with with fans rather than focusing on on the core match support. And I think for Chelsea, particularly when you look at let's say the the revenue generation aspect, you know the majority of money is is TV deals. It's it's from sponsors. It's it's from stuff that isn't necessarily connected to the let's say the match day experience. So you know you've got forty two forty three thousand people at Stamford Bridge. Ticket costs, you know, costs of, of food or beer, whatever it's going to be. You know that is a is a drop in the ocean compared to the you know the the, the TV the TV deals the Champions League money the the, the Nike sponsorship the the Yokohama sponsorship the, the you know all all of these sorts of players that have come in it's it's a fraction of that amount now and I think that this this shift to a more global perspective of the game I think is is something which is probably very you know it's very beneficial to to Chelsea obviously but you know globally obviously for the Premier League. Um, and I think it's it's going to be a trend that you see probably increase over the next few years. It'll be interesting to see, particularly with uh, Everton sort of securing rights to a new stadium, just how much pressure now is on Chelsea to to increase that capacity. Because you know if it, it's all about the the balance, you know the balance sheet now in terms of football clubs, and particularly with financial fair play. And you know the more money that you can you can put down as, as revenue, you know obviously the more that you can. You can therefore afford to spend in terms of 
um, amortization and contracts and player costs and all these sorts of stuff that comes into financial fair play calculations. So I think there is still a a benefit to having this, you know, sort of the bigger stadiums and focusing on the match day revenues um, because, you know, even if it's another £20 million a season, the way that football accounting works, that's potentially another, you know, £60, £70 million player on a five, six-year contract of, you know, £100,000, £200,000 a week. So just by, by increasing the stadium, you're almost guaranteeing that you can go out and sign a very good player every, every single summer. So in that aspect, I think it's still going to be important, but the focus will be on generating these bigger, um, more headline contracts, more immediate sources of income from the likes of uh, of Nike and Yokohama and all of these people that are that have been linked to to Chelsea. Um, so I, I can only see that being something that that continues. I mean, we, we've it's a little bit difficult to compare because with City and the likes of PSG, you have these very sort of artificially inflated sort of deals with you know with with Qatari investments and you know uh, Dubai and and you know the United Arab Emirates sort of all these various companies that are sponsoring City which probably kind of inflates the the general kind of going rate or the general kind of marketability sort of going forward. But I think uh, from Chelsea's perspective, particularly um, with the arrival of, of Christian Pulisic, um, you know, it will be probably looking to expand as much as possible into into the American market, looking for some, some major players there to potentially sponsor the team, um, obviously continue the relationship that they have with Nike. And then again, I still think the focal point will still be on trying to generate as much as possible um, from sort of the, the the eastern economies that they've they've been trying to with Carabao, with Yokohama, uh, with Hyundai, and there's probably some others that I'm forgetting as well. Um, obviously, we had Samsung for a very long time as well. So, you know, these are not sort of um, you know, uncorrelated events. Chelsea have had a very deliberate ploy here to move into that that Asian market with Samsung, with, you know, Yokohama, there's, there's, there's a definite correlation of thought and, and strategy there. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think generally it's, it's something that is, is going to keep on becoming more prominent. And as you say, you know, football is very much becoming an arms race now. It's about who has the most money, who can spend the most on contracts, who can, who can afford to pay the hundred million pound plus for the superstar that's going to get them their 30 goals so they can compete for elite titles. So, yeah, it's it's very much a focal point. I think off the uh, off the field, it's why Chelsea brought in a a CEO to look after the commercial side of the club, rather than you know sort of keep it within the the typical structure that they've had previously. So, yeah, you know, Guy Lawrence will continue to to try and build the the Chelsea brand. And you know, as much as saying the word brand irritates me as a as a sort of a traditional <laughs> football fan, it, it's the way of, it's the way of the world. It's the way that football's going. And yeah, it, it's only I think going to increase over the next few years. I don't think that the the Premier League bubble per se is, has reached its sort of peak yet. Um, I still think that there's definitely some some room to grow. And yeah, you know, it's, I think it's, it will continue for at least for the next sort of five years. So it seems like what you're, what, what, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems like we're just, the trend of what, you know, it's, it's sort of kind of, you, you're not limited to, oh, well, there we go. Another notification that, all American Chelsea podcast once again interrupted. <laughs> never, <laughs> never I can have a podcast where it's a hundred percent clean or whatever. But either way, but it seems like we're heading to a trend where the success of your club is not necessarily determined or limited to you know the where you land on the table. You can 
I mean, if you're if you have the ability to secure major contracts outside of uh, if you have the if your team has the ability or your company has the ability to secure huge sponsorship contracts, you don't necessarily need to have be high in the table. Just be in the Premier League and have a you know spend money in the you know in the office to have the best I guess sales guys. To be able to bring in these sponsorship deals and whatever, uh, whatever happens on the field happens on the field. But it seems like because I guess looking at it like that, if you're a business, you can't necessarily control what happens on the field. But you absolutely can control what happens in these meetings with with these companies. You can't control the success that you're having on the field, but you absolutely can control the success that you're having in these sponsorship boardroom meetings. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's there's definitely a very strong relationship between performance and your marketability, and therefore your ability mm. to to negotiate for, for significant contracts when it comes to mm. sort of the commercial aspect. Okay. So, I think from from the sort of the points I was making previously, I would say probably very much applicable to that. Let's say the top six clubs in the Premier League. Um, there's been something of a of a monopoly there for a number of years now. And I think that, you know, kind of that in itself really sort of sets the, the tone for a lot of these conversations. Um and within that sort of top six, it's then really about, you know, who can sort of generate the the most income. Um the guys who wrote Suconomics, I think uh, never mm-hmm. remember the guy, I think mm-hmm. it's Cooper. Um, you know, their one of their main sort of takeaways is that, you know, they previously thought that it was uh to do with transfer spend was the biggest indicator of how well a team could do. But I think when they actually rerun the numbers, it, it's really to do with the wages that you can you can afford to pay. And and with sort of the, the wage stuff and how contracts are amortized over the, the period that someone signs. So you know your hundred thousand pounds a week over five years is 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 accounted for in specific ways. Yeah. Um that makes the the let's say the the yearly kind of input from from commercial sources infinitely more um important that you can get those big lump sums in the year guaranteed secured lockdown because yeah you know it means obviously that if you know you have a another 15 20 million pounds a year coming in from you know sponsor a another from sponsor b that you can either give you know your star players um you know significant pay rises and there, there is a lot of research that shows you know, actually paying your better players in in most cases is better than going out and signing a different different player. Uh, increases player happiness. It, it reduces sort of the anxiety. It removes all sort of the questions of them potentially moving to another club. Means that they're settled. Keeps them sort of within the club. Um, and I think that that really will be the 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 ambition. It's it's virtually just just an arms race now between bigger clubs, and, and you're almost seeing it with. With uh, sort of cash injections coming in at Everton, you've seen some money coming to Wolves. You know that they they now. I love now Wolves. Kind of the I love wolves. It, that, wolves are yeah. Wolves are my second favorite team in the Premier League. I mean, and I, I use favorite very loosely. It's not like I'm out there rooting for them actively, but I. It, it, yeah, it, for me, I got my eye on uh, like it was a few years ago when that article, not article, came out, but I started reading how how they uh, had a whole company rebrand 
and the with the new logo how they went out to uh to the supporters and, and how they were shifting their whole entire marketing with the club i've always had my eye on wolves um and i love what they're doing i absolutely love what they're doing over there i love it love it love it love it love it i yeah, so i, mean, I truly hope there. that they break into the top 6 um and they become a serious force uh in 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 the premier league man because i love what that that company's doing and they're a good example of, of how, let's say, commercial relationships with an agent mm-hmm. is actually maybe, I'm not going to say as beneficial as, as having, you know, X millions of dollars dumped into the club every season. But the relationship that they've had with Jorge Mendes mm-hmm. from a commercial and a strategic perspective, I mean, you know, it's the reason that they've secured all these fantastic players is because, you know, favourable terms, favourable agent. Um, you know, and it's a slightly different approach to to the traditional sort of just dump as much money into a club as possible and hope for you know hope for the best. They they've tried something a little bit. I mean, some people were you know sort of questioning when when Ruben Neves goes from being uh, you know being at Porto to playing for Wolves and Wolves are in the Championship. Some people are questioning, obviously, that yep. I don't want to say the morality of it, but I mean you know it, it was sort of along those lines. So yeah, um, they're an interesting prospect for me because they've. They've kind of got the players in, but for a slightly different manner. And that's from having a a good commercial or good strategic relationship with an agent, which may be, again, something that you, you might see replicated in the future. Kia, Jarabsha, Mino, Raiolo, these sorts of guys with the pizza, man. players on the books. You know, it's it's not out of the realms of possibility that they you know, have sort of influence on, on where big clients go and, and maybe try and pull them all at, at a particular club in the future. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like if they're using the agent as an academy, uh, like a, def- you know, quote unquote, you know, the agent is the academy and they're sending players. Yeah, in. I, I, I love it, man. I, I love it. That's that company. Um, and I use the word, you know, team and company interchangeably there because I think the, the transformation happened in the offices before it happened on the field. And I love it. I, I, I'd love Wolves. And it, it, it seems like, you know. It seemed, it, I, wasn't it a few years ago? It seemed like Southampton was kind of doing, having that, uh, that, uh, that approach, where Southampton was turning out player after player, uh, and then it, they kind of stagnated, you know. Uh, a few years back, wasn't it that Southampton had like, yeah. you know, they had like twenty guys. It seemed like they were all were sold. They went moved on to become ballers uh, wherever they went, and and then now. I don't know what happened. <laughs> they're not. They don't. They don't have that uh, same, you know, core of guys anymore. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, their their approach was was interesting because I think their scouting model was, at one point was just ridiculous. They picked up Sadio Mane. They had mm-hmm. Virgil Van Dijk. Luke Shaw came through their academy. Yep. Adam Lallana. Yeah, a lot of players who have gone on to win, you know, Champions Leagues and and play for play for big clubs. Um, I think Oxide Chamberlain, was he there? I think he was there. Theo, I think Theo Walcott was also there at some point. So, you know, they've had a, a definite period over the past 10 years where they had the they ability fire. to go and find, yeah, you know, go and find really top players. Van Dijk was an, an excellent signing. You know, a lot of people were concerned at looking at Celtic, looking at the league. They sort of took a leap of faith and, you know, he's probably the, probably the best centre-back or in the conversation for being the best centre-back in the world um, at Liverpool. But yeah, you know, another club who, you know, had a, a foundation of, or have a, 
a history of bringing through players from their academy and, and traditionally they were able to go out and find some of these sort of gems of players the you know the Manets and the and the Van Dykes being probably the two best examples mm-hmm. um, but I think you know as as football analytics and scouting and all these sort of methodologies improve that that pool of or that sort of competitive advantage that they might have had you know shrinks every single year so it's it's more difficult to go and find a Golo Kante playing in Division Two, or you know, going to find a find Van Dyke playing in Scotland or whatever it's going to be. Um, and I think maybe that they've they've potentially struggled a little bit um, in terms of trying to replace some of the the real sort of top end talent that they've had to unfortunately sell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, on Liverpool, and we're going to get to uh, the questions now. But Liverpool right now, I think if I was Liverpool. I would sell Mohamed Salah and build the team around Mane because that dude uh, scares the shit out of me. <laughs> he scares me. Right he is five. so good. He's one of those, another another one, Bernardo Silva, another guy that scares the life out of me because it feels like, yeah, okay, uh, Mane plays on the left. Silva's supposed to be a right winger, but you watch the matches and they're everywhere. You see them everywhere. So those two guys scare the life out of me. Um, as opposed to Mohamed Salah, while he does put in thousands of goals, I know what I'm going to get. I know where he's going to be. Um, but, Mane, I have no idea. I, Silva, I, I don't I don't know. Does he play on the right wing? I don't know. He, I see him up front, uh, you know, as a striker. I see him in the midfield. I see him. I, I have no idea. So, all right, Joe. Let's get into let's get into uh let's get into the rest of it. Um real quick. I don't need any type of explanations. I don't need any details. I don't need anything other than behind in in if you when you pull out your phone and there's you're you're going through your WhatsApp messages. Do you have anything have you read recently anything behind the 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 cloak of secrecy? That has made your eyebrows raise up and go, hmm, interesting, or god damn it, any type of emotional reactions of what you're seeing or reading behind closed doors. Again, no details. I just want to know your feelings on what you are. Maybe something has come through that you're like, oh shit, damn it. You know, you know what I mean. But do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll be honest. I mean, this. I mean, in my view, kids, obviously, the, the transfer ban has had a pretty significant impact on the general news flow around the club. But, um, no, I mean, it, it's been very quiet. And I think for Chelsea, particularly, you know, after the the back of the the end of the sort of Conte era when I think Sarri sort of being a little bit tumultuous, um, the the somewhat tranquil nature, yeah, the sort of the tranquil nature of where we are at the moment, it's kind of welcome. Um, So, I mean, I think maybe that that probably in, you know, in itself is the surprising thing. (laughs) There's not a huge, you know, a huge amount of charm around the club for for what feels like the first time in in a number of seasons. And yeah, you know, it's, it's not ideal, but the more I think about it in terms of that whole transfer ban situation, the more I feel that this is the summer to take it. Because, I mean, you look around the league, no, there hasn't really. I mean, you know, there could be a, a massive flurry of activity in the next, you know, coming coming weeks or whatever. But at the moment, apart from your end on Bele, I think he's a good player going to Tottenham, and uh, 
is it Rodri at City? I think, you know, he'll mm-hmm. obviously be a player at City, but I, I'm not really sort of looking around and, and being completely blown away by by our competitors. You know, that they're, they're not signing, you know, four, five, six absolute superstars and we're being left in the, in, in the shade. So it feels like, for whatever reason, Premier League clubs are maybe maybe fed up with with overspending on players and they're taking a bit more of a reserved approach. Maybe the talent's not there. Maybe the talent's not available. But, you know, if we're going to take the ban and then maybe this is the this is the right time to take it and and hopefully you know sort of coming into next summer when the, the potential is there to sign players it's the market is a little bit more of a buyer's market so yeah um yeah i mean it, it's it said it's not not a lot going on at the moment but i think actually for the first time in a while that's probably a good thing all right well that i mean shit you just led into one of the questions so my man harsh asks on twitter that well Essentially, his question is he believes that this has been one of the best transfer windows, seeing how we have the ban. Um, do you think that this sensible um, new approach to transfers will continue? Or do you think that you know Chelsea will fall back into their ways or into you know what history has said and and, 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 and we're gonna go back to signing our, you know, Happy Dilabaji and our Matt Miazgas and our uh, Patos and Falcals and on and on and on. So I think, and, and maybe this at the moment is is more a hope than than an expectation. But I hope that that Petacek's kind of arrival back at the club sort of stops some of these slightly ridiculous transfers that we've sort of seen over the past couple of years. I mean, I. I'm a bit sad. I do like my data and I've I've kind of got records of every Chelsea transfer, I think from like 2013 onwards. And, you know, looking at uh, over, you know, well over 900 and what's it, about 940 million pounds spent. A billion uh, dollars. Over, over, well over a billion dollars on oh, players. You, you look at that squad and you've got to, you know, scratch your head a little bit and think, you know, where where is that, you know? Um, so my main hope is that Czech can provide some sort of reasonable, uh, even if it's just uh, an informed opinion on certain players, you know, is buying, as you say, Papi Gilabodji, um, is is he going to be worth the whatever it is we pay for? And hopefully Jack will turn around and go, no. Um, you know, the, the only concern that I had about the, the transfer ban was that I would have liked us to have gone into this season with a slightly more established centre-forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and by I, I don't mean sort of Olivier Giroud being a veteran, but I mean sort of having a, a Diego Costa, a Didier Drogba, you know, someone who who is sort of at their peak is going to get you sort of 20, 30 goals a season. Um, that would have been the only thing really that would have stopped me from draw. would have at least liked to have seen maybe the ban um, sort of push back. So I'm not 100% certain we've, we've got the, the right centre forward yet. You know, hopefully, again, that's something that, that sort of comes out in the wash over the next few weeks is, is we find who's going to be the number one guy. But um, yeah, you know, it's, it's an approach. I think that with Lampard being there and Lampard understanding the Premier League, and I think he'll be backed in a way that, that maybe not many managers since sort of early Mourinho was in terms of sort of getting players in and, and having the right influence in them to say, you know, I think sometimes we've, we've bought players, I'm not even sure really what some of the logic has been behind it, you know, doing agents favours, you know, buying them on some sort of random um, data model or whatever, you know, that suggests... That was, that, the, this, that was the Falcao and Pato exactly, situation. Yeah, you know, Pato and Falcao coming in, 
you know, we'll do we'll do this agent a favour because it might mean that we can get Antoine Griezmann. You know, it, these these deals that we've done with agents to take players for seasons have never really worked out in our favour. So, yeah, I mean, it said it's it's more of a hope at the moment, but I think the one thing that I'll say, and and, and this is to to harsh here, is that um, I think Petacek has a an enormous amount of integrity, and I don't think he would have taken the job just to be the the face, you know, sort of the, the the person coming out doing the press conferences, doing the the meet and greets, doing the photos with the players. I think he'll want to have a significant influence on the direction of the club from a a recruitment standpoint, from a player development standpoint. So, you know, he's widely regarded as one of the most intelligent footballers in the game. I think his his opinions, his understanding of the Premier League is is excellent, and and that's those are the reasons that I'm hopeful that he can be the right man for the job. And you'd have to say that you know. Chelsea have got a lot wrong in terms of transfers over the past couple of years. We've still been a very successful club. You know, if we can start getting more right than we get wrong, then I think we'll see we'll see us kind of uh, creep back up the table and start challenging Liverpool and City again within sort of the next two years. Okay. All right. <clears throat> well, then I'm going to get into another question because you kind of touched on it a little bit, a little bit. You were almost there. Looking into with the focus on the midfield and 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 and, and the players, uh, it seems like our midfield is might be stronger than ever. Yeah. Um, and I know that sounds crazy when you guys when 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 we have the likes of Danny Drinkwater and Bakayoko still on the team, still in there. That seemed both seemed like senseless transfers in the past, but with the likes of Mason Mount, Jorginho. Ross the boss Barkley continuing today his MVP uh campaign of the preseason. It seems like our midfield is stronger than ever. Um so and we haven't even had N'Golo Kante playing that much. So moving on to the season, like uh, I, 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 I mean it is an excellent problem to have, but somebody's gonna lose in the midfield and not get the playing time. how do you see Lampart, you know? kind of I mean Kovacic is in there too how, how do you how do you see like what do you what do you think Lampard's gonna do or or how is he gonna set the team up to kind of maximize on the great problem that we have of an abundance of talent in the midfield I think the, the thing that we've seen first of all is that we've we've been playing or he's been looking at a diamond midfield so my opinion, and, and probably I think from what you're saying as well, yours as well, I, I think the midfield is, is probably by some distance now our strongest area. Um, and to maximise the amount of midfielders you can get on the pitch, the diamond midfield obviously is something which allows you to play a, a defined holder, in this case, Jorginho, allows you to play two, two shuttlers, the, the two guys left and right of the of the diamond. Um, which do you think now, he's going to go with? Uh, like moving... like. Game one, do you think he's going to run with the diamond or do you think he's going to go 4-4-2? So a diamond, you typically employ that against a team whose fullbacks aren't very good. So mm. I think we've got Liverpool in the first couple of games. Like I'm mm-hmm. not playing against against Liverpool. I, I might play it against Man United. I think wan is a good defender, but I'm not sure how great he's going forward. Whereas, you know, Trent Alexander-Arnold, I know I don't, I don't want him running up and down the pitch all game. So a, a midfield diamond kind of is sort of you know, it it ensures that you're kind of playing a very sort of narrow um, kind of shape and you want to very much sort of build the game and play the game through the centre of the pitch rather than focusing on the flanks. And 
often when you're looking at uh, defending from a diamond, it's a little bit trickier because your kind of two sort of side midfielders are a little bit narrower. So, you know, your fullbacks are going to be a little bit more exposed to potentially sort of two of ones all the time. So, you know, it's a great it's a great sort of system for keeping possession and ensuring that your midfield and centre of the pitch is very strong. But typically you only play that against teams where you're kind of confident that you can pin their fullbacks back and, that, you know, you're not sort of going to be chasing shadows the entire game. Mm-hmm. I think the main thing that I'll say about Lampard and what he's shown so far, I think he will be very much situation or situational dependent. So if we want to counter-attack, I can see him playing a 4-2-3-1. You can also see him playing a diamond, as I say, if we want to sort of control the middle of the park and see him playing a 4-3-3. I, I can see him playing a number of shapes um, to to sort of maximise both the, the skill set of the players that he has at his disposal, but also to to negate some of the strengths of, of, of sort of our opposition. So, you know, if we're playing City or probably City, I'd say, or, or maybe Liverpool, I'm expecting uh, maybe a 4-2-3-1. United away, we might see the diamond in the first half. We might see the four through three. Um, but I do, I mean, I do at times think that, that fans get a little bit too hung up on, on formations. I mean, it, it's yeah. it's the instructions, it's the execution. You know, a a diamond, if you split it up, is it's just a very narrow four through three, four two three one. Again, you know, you can make that into a four three three very quickly with that sort of triangle with the two holding players and, and the ten being your three midfielders and push your, your the wide men, uh, you know, sort of even wider to ma- maintain width. You know, a lot of the times they are very, very similar shapes. I think sometimes, particularly what I've seen during preseason on on sort of social media, is some people have really gone a little bit too in depth on on the system and not necessarily focused on the instructions and the style. Um, but what? yeah, I mean, in terms of the sort of the midfield dilemma, I mean, you know, you've got Ruben to come back in yeah. in hope sort of midway through the season as well, Kante as well. You know, Kante, Kova, Jorginho, Ruben, Mason, Mount Barkley. I mean, it's quite a good. Even Danny Drinkwater has, and Bakayoko as terrible. I mean, as as uh, undesirable have they as they've been. I mean, there's still guys in the midfield that we can that we can use. I mean, they yeah, leave, I mean, those two I, leave a lot a lot to be desired. But I mean, shit, you know, they're still there. <laughs> Seems like they're not yeah. going anywhere either, you know. Seeing how the window's yeah, going to be closing I suppose, soon. I mean, it's not it's not really a hot take, but that they might go somewhere. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So I think that they're they're potentially. I mean, Bakayoko has options. Um, Drinkwater does, but I mean, they're both going to be loans with you know potential B- option options. buys. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then, and this is partly the problem where you give someone like Drinkwater a massively overinflated yep. contract, and you know he's he's quite happy to sit there and and be Chelsea's you know professional Instagrammer or what, whatever his actual job title is these days. Um, Same thing with and, Gareth Bale. I mean, exactly. Yeah, you know, him, him and Gareth Bale just just golf golf buddies. Um, sixteen. What is he getting uh, from Real Madrid? Like sixteen million dollars a year or something like that. So he's on he's on six hundred thousand pound a week, which oh is about eight hundred thousand US. So <laughs> a million dollars a week, almost yeah. a million dollars a week. Uh, let's just do the you know do the numbers between agent fees, taxes, blah 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 blah. He's probably taking home what a year, twenty thirty million dollars a year, plus away sponsorships and everything else on yeah. top of that. Okay, yeah. so almost forty to fifty million dollars yeah. a year, something like that. 
to sit and play golf. <laughs> oh Christ! And if I was Gareth Bale, I would I would say I'd go anywhere in the world you want me to send me. You could send me to anywhere, but that paycheck that comes in every Monday, uh, that better be exactly what I want because I ain't going anywhere. I'm not going nowhere. Absolutely. Who would blame him? Same thing with Danny Drinkwater. My always issue with Danny Drinkwater has been. You know, I don't have a problem with his talent. I don't have a problem with his skills. The only problem I have is the amount of money that he's making. And that has nothing to do with him. That has everything to do with the club. So, uh, you got to do better. If you're making that much money, you got to be contributing uh, to the 11. And it's more than practice, you know. The nice thing about Drinkwater is that, uh, so Chelsea fans who remember the 90s will, will remember a player called Winston Bogard. Um, he was, at the time, I think Chelsea got him from Barcelona. He was very highly touted. He came in in the 90s on about, I think it was about £50,000 a week. And, and that was when, that was like a serious amount of money for a player to get. Hmm. Um, and he, I think he might have played like 10 games to Chelsea in like five years. They tried to sell him, but he literally said to the club, I am happy to sit on this contract and play with the reserves for the next four and a half years of my career. Like he had absolutely zero intention of doing anything other than picking up his £50,000 a week in the 90s, which was, you know, extortionate amount of money. So for, for people now, like the millennial generation, Danny Drinkwater, it's weird how things always go in circles. Danny Drinkwater is almost like becoming the the sort of Winston Bogard of, of this Chelsea, you know, barely plays. I think he's on like £100,000 a week, you know, mm-hmm. to, to sit on the bench. And mm-hmm. I think the thing, the thing that disappoints me was that when he came from Leicester, obviously you know, very, very active player in their, in their team. You know, he's gone from being someone who is central, really, to, to, to them winning a league title, to just being content to sit on, you know, sit on his hands and just earn his money. And, you know, that's always, I think, a disappointing thing when you see a player who is, you know, I imagine Jim Walter's incredibly useful for like a mid, mid to sort of lower mid Premier League yeah, side. Oh, yeah. You know, maybe get some decent ball, maybe get back in the England conversation, but... There seems very little ambition from him to do anything other than, you know, sit collect. on his hands, pick up his money. And, and, and that for me, that, that's, the, uh, that's the sad thing. Yeah, and, and just collect the check. Um, I wanted to ask you real quick before we continue going into uh, more of the questions that people sent in. Um, you mentioned about the, that fans seem to get caught up in what formation uh, the team is playing. And I agree. Yeah. I, I do. I do think that there is beautiful aspects of uh, football. Period, where you can dive into the smallest detail and 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 live in there forever in those details uh, within the game. But I, I I don't know. Like at least for me, maybe my football mind is not uh, developed enough that I care about the formations um, that much. So, what are if uh, and and you seem to kind of um, all right. So my question is, what are the aspects of the game? What are going to be the aspects of Chelsea that fans can deep dive into and hang out um, in the minutia of the game? If it isn't the formation, what is it then? So I mean, typically when you when you kind of look at uh, let's say a team from from an analytical perspective. Yeah, I, I look at them in, in terms of four things. And the first thing is is kind of the strategy. This is, let's say, the way in which the team performs in order to achieve what it wants to do. Um, 
it's sort of the general guidelines, sort of how you regulate play, uh, how you regulate play, sorry. Um, and the Lampard, this seems to be, you know, he wants to have a high press. He wants to move the ball quickly, you know, uh, less touches in midfield. He likes to sort of build the play through, through his midfielders. So strategy is kind of the, the, the guidelines of, of how we play. Um, tactics, you know, kind of, I suppose, really, really closely related to, to strategy. Um, the way that this was explained to me previously is, you know, if you say strategy defines the road um, that, that we follow in, in, in how we kind of get from A to B, and the tactics are the way that we kind of move along, along sort of in that as well. So I think people often kind of conflate the two. They look at sort of the, the, the system, which is the first thing that I normally look at, which is just basically the, the organisation of the team um, on a piece of paper. And then what they really want to look at is the strategy and the tactics. They want to look at the pressing, the pressing cues, um, how, uh, how the, the style is from, from front to back. Is it a side who are looking to build up play from the centre-backs? Are there four backs pushing on? You know, do midfielders drop deep? Are, are the centre backs splitting? All these sorts of questions that come into play. I think people would, at least when I talk to people in football, they prefer to focus on the strategy and the tactics um, rather than the system. And the system mm. is, is really, for me, just the formation. And the last thing that I normally look at, and this is something that's becoming a little bit more um, spoken about in terms of sort of general football vocabulary for fans, is is kind of the the plays or the patterns of play. Um, mm. This was something under under Sari and Conte, and it's, it's a very Italian thing to have these very set patterns of play. You know, Sari was very much about using Jorginho as sort of the main fulcrum of the team. Conte had one where it would go up to wing wing back, back to one of the midfielders over the top to Costa. There, it's called it kind of the the set patterns of of how you want to play football. And again, I think that the pattern um, in terms of how Chelsea are looking under Lampard, that for me is the interesting thing to look at because. I felt particularly on the sorry, Chelsea's attack was was very kind of robotic. It was a little bit stagnant. The ball didn't move as quickly. Um, and I think the more that you listen to players, and particularly Jorginho, talk about maybe how he was sort of told to be a little bit more static, a little bit more limited in his approach to the game, that, that Lampard is probably going to tap into a little bit more of their creative side, give them a little bit more free reign. Um, you know, set patterns of play really are used when you have um, I'm not going to say limited footballers because you know they're Premier League players, but let's mm. say less, uh, let's say with a less football IQ. So Victor Moses is, is always my favourite example here. For one season under Conte, before teams figured out what was going on, uh, Victor Moses looked like Cafu. He looked like a really <laughs> top class right wing back. Yeah. Um, and, and this Hell is, of a is, comparison. He's <laughs> you know. The, these patterns of play, these these cues, these these set plays, or whatever you want, to, whatever terminology you want to use, what they do is they they take away the decision making aspect from players. So, a really smart player maybe maybe is able to make five to eight decisions when he receives the ball. The set pattern of play maybe condenses that down to three things, and those three things is is all that this that this player will work on in training. So, Victor Moses either does a B or C when he receives the ball in one in space one, two or three. He literally has to know how to do like nine things. So by reducing the options that you have with these really strict set, set patterns of play, what it means is, is that player can actually play more freely because he knows he's only got to make, you know, make maybe one or two decisions in a game for himself. Everything else is done by the done by the system. When you go mm. into sort of you know better players and better coaches, someone like Pep Guardiola, it's still very much a, a set pattern of play. 
but because the players he's working with are better, maybe because he's a better coach of the system, you know, instead of having three or four decisions, you've got maybe 10 or 15 choices for what you're supposed to do with the ball. Um, and it's a little bit, uh, seeing some some of this sort of stuff come through from from Lampard and, and Jody Morris, particularly in sort of central midfield areas. You know, they like to keep it quite tight. They like one of the wingers to stay quite wide. You know, there's always kind of a switch of play on. The number 10 has got a very de- defined role here. They're, they're very much a counter-presser. Um, they're very much a, a focal point for the attack. The strikers have, have seemingly sort of being able to to sort of, uh, you know, kind of push wide to channels and sort of, you know, there are, there are different different sort of options um, that, they, that they've shown over the past couple of, of weeks. But I mean, that, that's sort of the stuff that I think people in football would will talk about. They will talk about sort of the set pattern, the plays, the kind of tactical approach and the strategic approach to the game um, rather than, okay, 4-3-3 versus, you know, 4-diamond-2 versus 4-2-3-1. They're focusing on what the individual instructor is, what the individual strategies, tactics, what the set plays are for these particular players. Because, you know, during a game, I mean, you know, you, you can see at, at any moment on, on the pitch, you know, Chelsea will might drop into a 4-4-2. There might be a, a 4-4-2-3-1, 4-3-3, 4-2-4. going to very much depend on, on the game state. So I think people step away from looking just at systems and then trying to analyse systems, but actually try and delve into the, particularly the strategy and the tactics and, and some of the set patterns to play. And I think that they'll, they'll understand more what's going on in the game and be able to give more of a reasonable critique. Damn, Joe. I always learn. I always learn more than I'm ready to handle when uh, when you and I talk, man. Fucking hell, man! Just when I thought that I'm kind of starting to get my, you know, grasp the idea, I talk to Joe Tweedy and I realize I don't know shit. Um, and it's it's funny because I I always compare football, um, then to the sports that I grew up playing: basketball, American football, whatever, and in. In American football, you run a play, and you're told, the play starts like this, you block that guy right there. I always played the line. So, you block that guy right there, uh, this is going to happen, and you continue blocking until the play is dead. Uh, you know, the skilled position, guys, you, you're going to be here, you catch the ball here, and then do your best to score a touchdown after that. And it seems like I've always considered soccer or football in this case um the opposite you get the ball you look for the open man i've never really considered that they are just like in any other sport uh plays that are called um you know whether it's okay well i'll ask you in football you know in american football there you, you 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 have a break in the game you call a play that play has a name Go to the line. You try to execute it. In football, is there? There can't be. The game's always moving. There, you can't stop the game and say, "Okay, we're gonna call play one B. Now we're gonna call play two A." How does that work? I've never, I've never thought about asking that. How does that work? That in the game, we have to do this, or is it just okay? We're gonna execute. What well, well, shit? I'm not even gonna try to break it down. You tell me. So, I mean, I suppose for US listeners, I think some cases the comparison to basketball works quite well. Okay. Um, you have, you know, you, you have a typically have a ball handler, a point guard who is is running a, a set play, looking for openings, probing for weaknesses. Probably how Golden State play where they move the ball around quite a lot. Um, you know, before they actually sort of actually run a play. 
at um, in terms of football, when you see particularly possession dominant teams, you know, passing the ball, shifting it from left to right into midfield, back, etc. What they're looking to do, they're looking to pull someone out of position to the point where someone in that team recognises that, you know, pattern B or C or whatever it is that we've worked on in training, that there's now a possibility to sort of to do this in, mm. to sort of kick this off. Um, so, you know, basketball, someone, uh, someone picks, someone rolls, whatever, very simple example, mm-hmm. you know, someone does a pick, that, that's a cue then for the ball handler to either go left or right around the pick and, and, and make something happen, either pass or, or shoot themselves. In football, if someone has pressed and you've managed to beat the press with a pass, let's say into midfield, mm-hmm. that would be a trigger for the midfielder because he knows now, okay, the forward's out of position. That means the midfielder's most likely out of position. You know, something happened with their, with their pressing. And the most obvious one, and this is one that, that Conte used all the time, was he would, I think actually, if you remember back to the, um, the goal that we scored against Man United, Pedro scored in like 10 seconds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ball went wide to fullback, came back into midfielder, went over the top. Pedro ran in from his wing position and finished the ball up here. That would have come from weeks and weeks and weeks of working on this particular trigger in midfield. Okay, so you know, um, someone's pressed the winger, there's now space in this gap here. If we can get two, three quick passes off, we know that we can get a ball in over the top. Um, it, it's and I suppose, again, this is why when you listen to the comparisons of players like Jorginho and these sort of controlling midfielders compared to quarterbacks, it's the same kind of decision-making process and mechanics that they go through. You need the same kind of lateral vision. You need the same kind of ability to process lots of different visual cues at the same time. Hmm. You know, if, if you can see, as you say, you know, someone who is is pressing, someone's in a wrong defensive position, you know, there are cues that they will rely on in games that mean that they can execute certain sort of moves that they're working during the week. And in terms of training, it's called shadow play, um, which is kind of something that players oh, shit, Joe, before. you're doing it again. You're giving me yeah. something. Now I'm going to have to Google. Now I'm going to be with Googling shadowing play, shadow play and YouTubing shadow play for the next two weeks. Damn it. <laughs> God damn it. Yeah, it's... Um, yeah, I mean, it's a way of it's a way of coaching that you know it's in most cases it's without opposition and it's kind of as you say going through how you progress the ball with these sort of set patterns. So, you know, in most cases it could be that um, you know to create a passing lane, something very simple. Ball goes from the right centre back into the midfielder, back to the left centre back, and then they play a quick ball up to the striker, or they might they may play a quick ball out to the winger. You know, it, it's all about creating space and and pulling pulling people out of position, very similar to, to basketball, very similar to, to American football, you know, creating mismatches. But in terms of, instead of it being sort of one-on-ones and stuff, it's mostly about identifying space and identifying the potential. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's what? it's a little bit complicated, um, yeah. you know, but in terms of, in terms of like actual plays, you say no one's sitting there calling, you know, uh, I don't know, 10, nine routes or whatever it's going to be, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's someone, it, it's weeks and weeks of repetition and work and understanding and doing all these little drills in training and stuff like that. And then hopefully, as you say, when you come into a game, you need players who are intelligent enough to recognize that the, the situation they've been working with is now live. And then that's what the comparison I always make with Victor Moses is, is before people figured out Conte's system, um, you know, his ability to, to execute the three things he was asked was incredible. You know, he looked like an absolutely, completely different player for an entire season. And that was primarily because the way that he could execute these these set patterns of play. 
you know, he knew that he was either giving it back to the right side of centre-back, dropping it into the right central midfielder, or, you know, chipping the ball forward to, to someone ahead of him and then linking up the play. It was it was a simplified decision-making metrics, um, uh, sort of matrix that he had um, that, that enabled him to be a better player. So, yeah, I mean, you can overcomplicate it, obviously, but, you know, most most teams now will have a number of these these ways. I mean, you've probably heard the term, like how you progress the ball up the pitch, yeah. ball progression, ball circulation, all of these terms come from ways of, of generating these sort of cues and these mismatches so that you can you can sort of, you know, kick off or, or start one of these set patterns of play. And a lot of it is to do with runs in behind, you know, creating space, creating uh, shooting opportunities. So it's, uh, yeah, it, it's it may not be as, as defined as running a play or running a, a defined play in the NBA or the NFL, um, but it, it's, it's kind of more of a fluid sort of situation. And that's why, you know, intelligent footballers guys like Cesc Fabregas, guys like Jorginho don't always necessarily need to be the quickest because if they can if they can process more decisions than other players, generally they'll pick the right one and generally it means that they've they've been able to to sort of execute these these patterns of play a lot better than, than most people around them. And if you if you've got 15 decisions to make and you're always making the right one, it's very difficult to guess one in 15 if you're an opposition player every single time. Fucking hell. So I guess uh, to boil it down in the simplest terms, um all team sports are playing the game, you know, a game of if 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 this, then that. It's just yeah, that. Uh, exactly. It's just that you know, in the NBA and in the NFL, they break for uh, for you know thirty seconds. And in the NBA, it's actually when you when you toss in the ball and the point guards bring it in, he puts his hand up to call a play. In 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 football, they do the same thing, but there's no break in play to then say, okay, we're all gonna do. We're all looking for if you know this specific thing um, in this moment of the game. If this, then that. Damn, man. God damn it, Joe. You always do this to me, man. You always do this to me. You always give me things that I have to. You always give me homework, bro. <sighs> I always thought. I always thought. See, it's. I always thought it's the same. You know, on a higher level of what I do. Or everybody does around the world when you're playing football with your friends. You go out there, you know, you move in these certain, you know, certain movements. You look to see who the open guy is. You, pa- I, I don't, I don't know why I didn't think of. I don't know why. I, I don't know. Maybe it's maybe I'm the only one that I'm just the idiot in the room that never thought of it like this. But God damn it, Joe, that's well, why just, you're the people's to, champion. Just, to, I mean, to. Give a really simple example. Everyone knows what a one-two is in football. You yeah. Know, you pass someone, that, that is a set play. So you may have a situation where you, let's say you've quickly moved the ball from left to right, you've got a right back and you might have a winger and you're, you're against one defender. So that whole set pattern of play has been, it's been about getting a two-on-one on one side of the pitch. So and all you're looking to do there is literally play a wall pass around him, get across him. That is a set pattern of play. You know, it's how you move it from left to right, right to left. It's all about, it's, it's the same as in every sport. It's about trying to get a, a space advantage. It's about exploiting situations. You know, it doesn't have to be incredibly complicated sort of passing and, and sort of very intricate movements. It can be as simple as the ball comes from left to right and now we have a two-on-one. And when we're in a two-on-one, we know that what we want to do is play a quick one-two and get across him. That, that's, that's a setback in the play. Shit, it, it, that seems, you know what, that, that more so reminds me of uh, like fighting. Uh, in striking or in grappling, you're making a movement to draw a reaction, so then you can you can do something. It's not so much more, 
not so much like in the NFL where, you know, we're all calling a play, but it's the same shit. It's the exact same shit. I I don't know why I'm I'm here just floored that I never looked at the game in that way. I, it's a perspective that I never had. I don't I don't know why. I I don't I just don't know why. Really, really simple thing. I mean, people know there are there are set pieces. You know, different types of set pieces. That that's a set play. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but well, see that for me that for me it was always understood because okay, there's a break in play. I see. You know, the guy on the corner putting up his arms, various, you know, making a movement, essentially calling a play, and then people reacting to that play being called. You know, I I, I, I understood that facet of the game. It's yeah. just when the ball is constantly in movement, I don't see that. I see David Luiz yelling... <laughs> Yelling at a midfielder, Ross Barkley or Jorginho. I mean, we spoke at the beginning of last season, and and uh, I picked up immediately Jorginho coming back to uh, you know to the back line and always being on the side nearest to the ball. If the ball switched to the right, he was running to the right and being as close as he could to the ball. To the ball, uh, yeah. I, I picked up on that right away. But I, I don't know, Joe. God damn it, Joe. That's it. I mean that, that's it for for sorry the let's say the, the the genesis of nearly every set play and this probably was one of the things that counted against Jorginho was that near enough everything had to be started by him yeah so where you're mentioning that he would you know he had to run across to the side that had possession etc he was always the first option and he was always the one that you know he used to play that ball around the corner you know and, and all these sorts of little ways of getting the ball out from from the center backs that that's a, that was a sorry set play you know so you know people I think people will notice it more now. They look at games and they'll see certain movements that players repeat often. Pedro's um, when Pedro plays on the right, that run he does from right to left behind the set, the centre back set play. Yeah, it's, it's something that he will look at in midfield. He'll see two or three passes and he'll know when the ball comes back to Jorginho or whoever. Actually, now this is going to be tipped over the top. Yeah, and it's just it's it's an intuitive thing. It's exactly the same as any other sport. It's, as you say, it's just. It's just noticing the cues and, and it's the practice and the and the repetition of doing that. You know, that, that run that Pedro makes, he's not making it, you know, because I, I'm just going to make a run. He's seen the, the, the secret to develop in midfield and now he's making that run. It's the same with um, Diego Costa and Cesc Fabregas. Mm-hmm. When Costa would, he would see the ball come to Fabregas in certain areas and he knew, okay, bang, I'm going to run off this centre-back at this angle because I know the ball's going to come over. The goal against Arsenal, the goal against Watford... You know, there's so many. There's so many times when um, Fabregas Everton. played Costa in. I think know, there was one that, in Everton as well. The same thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that that is that. That's what we mean by by set play. Fuck. It's the recognition that you know that, that when the ball is in this area, that this player is going to do this because we've worked on it in training. We know that this is a thing. Um, and I said that's you know that's a really really good example is the the goal against Arsenal where Costa chipped the keeper. You know, he's yeah. got two centre-backs, sees the ball going, bang, Costa's off, you know, straight away because he knows he knows the ball's coming. Um, Drogba, you know, when the ball would go out wide, Drogba knew, passing a play in this particular area, um, you know, he'd make an in-to-out move, bang, on the front post, win his header, usually on target. These, these, these are all things that, that happen in games. Um, you know, when you, when you hear commentators and people talk about players that have got good relationships, it's often because they play together and they realize that, okay, you know, in this situation, he's nine times out of 10, he's going to do this. So when it goes there, that's my trigger to go. That's, that's my trigger to react. That's my trigger to make a run, to offer myself, to go wide, to do this, to do that. 
you know, it's it's a complicated thing to coach, but when you start noticing it during games, you'll notice it more and more often. You'll see, ah, okay, so this is why Jorginho is coming here every time Barkley touches the ball, or this is this is why Kante goes there when Jorginho's here. It, it it's just something that you'll start to notice more and more. God damn it, Joe. Now, now that's all I'm going to see. That's all I'm going to be seeing. I, I'm going to be watching games. I'm going to forget the score, forget everything else. I'm going to be, ah, there's <laughs> it. There's one. Oh, man, Joe. God damn it. I feel, does does everybody look at the game like this? Has everybody, my question to you is yes or no. Am, has everybody been watching the game like this or, 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 and I'm just the idiot that's late to the party or people generally don't notice the game like this? This this is the benefit of having three, four, five friends who okay, good. actually actually coach properly and have pretty pretty significant qualifications. So, you know, I, I talk to them about about football pretty much every day. Okay, good. Uh, and I the amount of stuff that I learn off of these people um, is is crazy. So yeah, I mean it's I, I don't say I mean I wouldn't say that I necessarily. I mean, I, I watch football for the enjoyment of it first and foremost, and because I, I absolutely am psychotically in love with Chelsea. I, if I rewatch a game, that's when I tend to notice stuff. I mean, I, I, I watch football yeah. as a fan first and foremost. I don't watch it as a, as an analyst or someone who's trying to sort of figure out what's going on. Um, it happens a bit naturally. That's just sort of the way that I process stuff. But I mean, I, I will ninety nine times out of hundred just try and enjoy the game. Um, when I, if I watch it back. And that's when I start to notice some of the stuff that's happening. But um, I don't think you're you're alone in that. I mean, I, I don't watch NFL to, to analyze the the blocking schemes that they're employing. So um, yeah, it's, I, it's, it's I, just... yeah, no, I, I I think in the NFL I do I I do yeah no I I think in the NFL I do notice things I do notice things like blocking schemes. Okay, when they're doing this, the guard always pulls. Yeah, I, I do. I do notice that. But I, then again, that's just the sport that I've been playing all my life. Um, but then again, it, it, Joe, real quick, you don't have to answer this. Yeah, I prefer you don't answer this. One of those friends you uh, are talking about, by any chance, are they currently employed by a certain team that we both follow? All right. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I, I, I was going to be cocky and say which one. But, um... <laughs> Even better. Leave it like that. Leave it like that. That's the best. All right. Uh, by any chance, was one of those friends working today? All uh, right. Next uh, question. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's why he's the people's champ. You fucking guys think I was bullshitting you? Do you guys think I was lying to you? Do you think this is the reason why he is known as Joe Lambeau Tweety? God damn it. <laughs> I fucking love it. All right, Joe. Oh, shit. All right. Well, next question. Um, First and foremost, with the questions, guys, uh, we Joe and I, we've been talking for a minute now. We've been talking for right now. The count is one hour and 22 minutes. I appreciate every single question that uh, has come in um, that's been asked. And a lot of the questions Joe has kind of touched on, giving you an insight. Um, so please don't think that just because I'm not asking your specific question that I'm ignoring your question. I actually have the phone in my hand right now and I'm going through all the questions. And if Joe answers it naturally without me having to ask him, then I'm not going to ask him. So... I'm just asking the questions that I feel like Joe hasn't been answering. So that, that I just want to put that out there. Um, 
so here we go. You haven't said anything about this, so I'm going to be asking. Um, what are your expectations for this season? Oof. Um, I think the, the more that I look at the teams around us, I, th- I don't think – well, I think finishing top four is a possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that has to be the that has to be the objective is is a top four finish. Um, I'll even I'm go a step okay. further than that. Uh, not to cut you off, but I'll go, yeah. I'll go a step further than that. I think within I've always said this, and I'll continue to say this. And I refuse, um, even if the club, you know, if I was brought into the office, and the club was like, "Yo," like I was brought into the boardroom, the club was like, "Yo, you're wrong about this." I refuse to even for, to even hear it. The expectation for anybody that receives a direct deposit uh, from Chelsea Football Club is to be is to finish first. Period. Having said that, this is what Joe Tweedy, or me, <laughs> or anybody else expects the club. If anybody right now from Chelsea Football Club. If their expectation isn't to win the Champions League, win the Premier League, win the FA Cup, win the Carabao Cup, win every single thing that they're in uh, for the strikers, not to win um, the Golden Boot, whatever whatever the case might be. If your expectation isn't that, then you're, you're, not, you're playing for the wrong club. Now, Joe, what is your expectations for the club? So, I think the way that I see things is that... Let's say everyone's fit, you know, Callum's back, Ruben's back, etc. I think our first 13 to 14 players are pretty decent. I think that, you know, if, if we're not looking at playing twice a week or whatever, that if that side plays once a week, that's a team that can can push quite quite high. I, I don't think we're we're near City or Liverpool at this point in time. I'm, I'm being completely honest with myself. Um, but a, a third place finish, and I, I think actually, you know, and with some pretty decent games against. City and Liverpool um, would would do me. I'd like to, I'd like to win a cup competition this season. Um, FA Cup or League Cup doesn't bother me. And I think getting into the quarters of the Champions League would be decent again, given the the fact that we we have a transfer ban. The one thing that I will say is that where my concern comes in is if we start picking up injuries to some of these sort of first, let's say like core first teamers, first you know fifteen people, whatever guys who are going to play pretty regularly. The, the squad depth behind some of these players that that's where I have I have some concerns about about where we finish this season so assuming you know that we have a fairly healthy season that we can keep the the main core players in our team fit and, and playing every week I think for maybe you know if I'm being super ambitious and and Tammy or Michi or Olivier you know start smashing in goals then you know pushing for a second because you know Liverpool, I think they won the Champions League. They, they haven't added anyone spectacular yet. I've not seen them linked with anyone. Maybe they have a little bit more of a, of a you know, a slump after they've won the, the Champions League under Klopp. I don't know. Um, maybe they're tired after last season, but maybe they're catchable. Maybe City are. Um, but I, I think I, I would take third. I would like to win the FA Cup. Um, but for me, the next season is about laying a foundation, you know, getting a handful Agreed. of these really, really top young players as part of that first team conversation. You know, the Reese Jameses, Mason Mounts, maybe Tammy or, you know, whatever Callum, Callum establishes himself, whatever that's going to be. 
um, to set the ground for next summer because we have got an absolute ton of money to spend. You know, we, we won't be able to, I mean, we normally spend over 100, 150 million pounds. You know, if we can drop 300 million pounds in a window, even two, two to 300 million pounds next summer, you know, on, on a really, really top tier centre forward, maybe a top centre back, maybe, a, you know, how, how things pan out. But that, that, that for me would be a very successful season. I think it has to lay the foundation for next year. Um, I've said it on a number of podcasts now, but I think Lampard will get two years regardless of what happens this season. Um, hmm. So I think that it's about laying the foundation for, for next year. And I think a third place finish, more Champions League football, you know, let's say the establishment of, let's say, Rhys James is now established as a Chelsea player. Callum is as well. Do you think Mason he'll depla- uh, displace uh, Aspie? Or do you think Rhys James is good enough to make Frank Lampard sit down and go, God damn, I got to figure out a way to get this guy on the pitch? Yeah, I do. Okay. Uh, he, for me, is the the modern embodiment of a, of a fullback, you know. And I think that the, the way that I... I, I sort of tell people about him is that he is such a good footballer that to save Wigan's season, they put him in midfield for 15 games Jesus. and he ran the show. You know, this is a guy who's played a bit of centre-back at Chelsea, primarily been a full-back, but he's now playing in centre-mid, you know, in the championship, physical league, a lot on the line for Wigan. You know, they were going through a bit of a rough patch and he completely and utterly bossed it every single week. And I think, you know, he's got the he's got the athleticism, he's he's built like Branislav Ivanovic, he's got that kind of tank right back build about him, he's got an excellent cross. And I think potentially, you know, Aspilicueta isn't old and he's definitely not past it by any means, but he's got a lot of miles on those legs. And it's like it's a bit like a, you know, one of these NFL running backs that's yeah. been a you know a bell cow from like twenty one until twenty nine. Look at Joe <laughs> using the terminology bell cow. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, you have no idea how big of Minnesota Viking fan I am. Um, yeah, but I mean that, that you know <laughs> that whole concept of, of just having mileage and tread on the on, on the legs. Um, I think that maybe we see a little bit of, of when Aspilicueta was playing left back. You know, he kind of eased Ashley Cole out of the team, and that was how how the season finished with Aspilicueta was the first choice. I could see that happening with Reece James. I could see him mid-season taking that right back spot, making it his own. And maybe, because I still think that his best position at Chelsea has been at left-back, um, having Azpilicueta move over to the left-hand side and, and defending behind uh, Hudson-Odoi for the remainder of the season. But I, I, do, I do genuinely think that Reese James has both the right attitude, the ability, um, and, and it hopefully, again, it comes back from this injury that he's had, you know, he comes back stronger. Um, but I, I think he is someone that can can actually stake a claim for, for Chelsea for next season and then start looking at international ones the following season. Jesus. I mean, uh, you you did an article on him. When was it? Not la- last season you did an article on him, right? Yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, it, was, it was interesting because it was uh, well, 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 well before all of the, the hype from him um, started at Wigan. But, you know, I actually, there was people gave me quite a lot of, uh, a lot of shit for that, actually, because they were like, oh, you know, you should have written about Callum Hudson the door. You didn't write about this, that, the other, etc. But and I even actually, interestingly, I called that he would probably end up in midfield at some point. Um, you know, I didn't actually realise it would happen so soon. But you know, he he and I sort of said that he's got the skill set to play in midfield. So yeah, he's he's one that I've been very impressive for a while. I think people who, I think a lot of people were interested in academy players, but people who really watch under twenty three, under nineteen, under eighteen football a lot. Um, something that I do, something that people I speak to do, 
will always say that, that Rhys James is has been one of the sort of outstanding graduates from that that Chelsea crop of players recently. Mm. Um, you know, he he won the Player of the Year ahead of Callum, and it, it was fully deserved, even though Callum was spectacular that season. Um, you know, captain the FA Youth Cup winning side. You know, he was just an, an exceptional leader as well. So I, I think you know he is for me potentially one that, that that will come through next season. And I hope you know if he's established, then. We haven't had a great right back for a while, um, you know, a, a real, real top tier one. So it'd be nice to actually solve that problem with someone who's come from the academy. From the academy. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Um, and it would be awesome too when Callum, is, not Callum, Reese James is, you know, winning awards, and he's up there at the podium. And he goes, and last but not least, the man who started this all off, the man who discovered me, Joe. This trophy's for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be awesome. I can't wait, Joe. I cannot wait for that moment for you. I, I can't wait. I, I, I can't wait. Oh, man. Um, you We kind of mentioned Colum Hudson-Odoi. I have questions on um, on on Colum Hudson-Odoi. Do you yep. think – I mean, it's pretty much – it's he's, he's signing the contract. I, I think I even saw on Twitter today that uh, somebody during the match – um, I don't know who, what, what stream or whatever. It, it was kind of mentioned that he has signed the contract. It's done. It's dusted. Um, I know, you know, it, nothing official from the club, but pretty much everybody knows, with the exception of Bayern, uh, Bayern, that <laughs> that he has signed the contract. Um, but the question revolves around not in so much that will he sign, but. Can you explain to us, based off of what you know, how much Lampard affected the situation? Because I know, based off of the conversations that we've had, based off of the conversations uh, uh, that, that I've seen videos come out, that it's always been understood that Callum wants to stay. That it was various members, his brother, whoever you want to, it doesn't matter who the people within his inner circle were pushing for him to leave for, for whatever various reasons. So the question is not so much what has Lampard said to Callum because Callum seemed like he wanted to stay even when Sari was here. I mean, at, at least it was suggested that he would stay even if Sari was here. But so much, what did Lampard say to his circle to change them to kind of have him say, or or do I not understand the yeah. situation? What <laughs> at so, all? I think the, the the major thing to say, and you know, people can can say this is speculation, etc. But if if Sari had remained at the club, then Callum most likely wouldn't have signed a contract. Um, I think he, you know, he made his league debut or league first league start in I don't know April or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, this is after being probably probably the most exciting player in pre-season last season was was Callum. You know, we didn't have anyone. What was I? Was it was it a World Cup last? I can't remember. There was some yeah, reason. Yeah, we had we had a World Cup summer, and that was the reason why uh, yeah. Hazard didn't come in. It's also the reason why uh, Pedro, yeah, yeah uh, Hector Bellerin yeah. put uh, Callum Hudson Odoi as the scariest human being on on earth because yeah. what Cho did to Hector Bellerin uh, should be illegal. In the preseason, what he did to him should be illegal. Yeah, so um, 
you know, we're going back to the, you know, the transfer request that was made in January. Mm-hmm. I think this was very much made on the back of, I think, Hudson Adoy and Hudson Adoy's camp not seeing a a pathway to to the Chelsea first team under Sari. And you know, Sari's famous comments about, I think, you know, he said a player needs to be about twenty three for them to be considered, you know, a first team player. And obviously, I think Callum was seventeen or eighteen at the time, so yep. you know, he's, he's not going to sit there for five years. <laughs> You know, and wait for wait for sorry to pick him. The the stuff that maybe isn't so well known is that he is incredibly friendly with a guy called Jonathan Panzo. This is a guy who was at Chelsea for a very long time and moved to Monaco that summer. It might have been the summer beforehand. Um, oh yeah, 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 yeah! I remember he was a he, he was a, a kid. I, I thought we we're talking yeah. about an agent. He's a kid. He moved last summer. He decided he didn't yeah. want to be with uh, Chelsea anymore. Yeah. Yes, I remember. So John Panzo, very, very friendly, very popular figure in that Chelsea Academy group, um, was, was obviously no doubt you know, extolling the virtues of, of moving away from Chelsea. And also Jaden Sancho. So obviously the guy at Borussia Dortmund is, is another mm-hmm. one who is an incredibly close friend of, of Hudson Odoi. So again, you can see the sort of conversations that they're most likely to be having. You know, you're going to come play. Germany loves young players. You know, his experience of Germany is all positive. So He's got a lot of close friends who have moved away from from clubs, you know, City and Chelsea, and have gone on to to what they feel is is a more happier existence, you know, elsewhere. So that that was kind of the stuff that's floating in the background. Um, and then as we kind of move through, you know, sort of that whole Sari period with him at the club, my understanding at least, and, and this is you know speaking with with not his agents, but people who know his agents, people who work in the game as intermediaries. Um, that he had very little intention of signing a contract while Sari was Damn. here. You know, it was either looking to to push for a move in the summer to Bayern, or you know, leave on a three the following year as a 19 year old with you know, pretty much the entire selection of clubs at your feet as a as a young player. Um, what changed, obviously, with with Lampard coming in? Um, now, one of the comments I got from someone who has very very close ties with the Chelsea Academy is that 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 entire building has, has almost been completely sort of recatalyzed and re-energized since Lampard's coming over. Um, you know, his comments about obviously wanting to give young players opportunities, but they have to take them. You know, they now see that there's a realistic opportunity for them to to come and start training with the first team to actually make an impression and it, that they're, they're not just coming along to make up the numbers. And I think, you know, with both with Conte and with Sari, there have been instances where, you know, they've basically got under 23 players, you know, under whatever, you know, young players over during pre-season or, or during the season to effectively be glorified, you know, training dummies, glorified training cones. And I think that obviously is not the kind of interaction you want to have as a 16, 17, 18-year-old coming through yeah. you know, your training session with the first time. You're basically just, you're just a glorified training cone. It's not, it's not really the kind of thing that sells the, the club to you. So, you know, kind of moving beyond that, what has happened um, with, with Lampard taking over is that that entire sort of relationship with the academy has is, is almost changed overnight. It obviously helps when you have Jody Morris, who has probably worked with the majority of the academy players at some point in their career, and Joe Edwards, who has been promoted directly from the academy to work with the first team. You know, now there is a, a familiarity with the players. There's a desire to bring them through. There's a real kind of, you know, it, it's, a, it's a matter of, of pride for these guys to develop young talent. It's one of the things that, you know, whenever, um, you know, whenever I talk to them personally, 
they they always mention that that's one of the main things that they like doing is developing young Chelsea players. That's that's something that they're very very passionate about, um, and I think that they're very sincere with that. So, you know, over a number of weeks again, they're, they're, you know, there have been some back and forth between us and the boys' agents and the club. But I think what they've done is they've they've come to the sort of right conclusion that you know Lampard has, has told him, and I think you know he's been he's been excellent from a political standpoint with his you know. The, the way that he's publicly spoken about Callum, you know, he's he's made him feel like he's an integral part of the team, that he wants to kind of build that left-hand side around him. He's publicly saying all the right things that no one has ever said really about an academy player at yeah. Chelsea ever. Um, and I think once that started filtering through, you know, then obviously you've got all the positive feedback from young players who have spent time with the, uh, with the first team. So, you know, the Billy Gilmores, the Conor Gallagher's of this world, you know, Tammy, Ruben, all of these guys and are, are, are now sort of feeling the, the kind of positivity around the around the squad, around the young players. And I think it's not so much that it's been a change of heart. I think that he he's been very forthright about his career. He wants to play. He doesn't see himself as a young player. He wants to be a you know like a featured player at Chelsea. Um, and I think that that really has been what it's been boiling down to is that Lampard and Morris and Edwards and Newton, the sort of first team coaching staff, have made him feel like he is an integral part of, of what they're trying to do going forward. You know, he will be, for them, the litmus test of whether their footballing philosophy is is talk or whether it's it's action. You know, he is the first real, real kind of potential, I'm not saying real potential superstar, but I mean that they've, you know, both, you know, both Morris and, and Edwards that they've consistently worked with. Lampard I probably probably trained, you know, Callum at some point considering he did his his coaching badges with that yeah. sort of group of players. So th- this is kind of the real litmus test. And I think Ruben's now established himself. You know, he's he's breaking out from being an academy player. He's now one of Chelsea's players. You know, Callum, I think, is the is now the the, the poster child for that academy generation to see, okay, you know, we've we've heard them talk a very good game. Now let's see sort of what the fruits of that of that conversation is going to be. But I think the main point being that, you know, the club and Hudson Adoy's representatives have, you know, seemingly come to an agreement. Um, that, that sees Callum be here for the next five years of his career um, and I think you know when we look back on this and, and hopefully you know if Callum pans out as well as I think he will you know this you know this summer could be a pivotal moment for Chelsea in terms of you know the, the time that they they probably sort of got on board with with Hudson Adoy and, and and made him feel like he was you know the next sort of face of or one of the next faces of, of the club so yeah it's it's always been about I think Callum's kind of contentions have always been about, you know, this divide between experienced players and players who were bought and then players who come from the academy. It's almost like a two-tier system. Yeah. And like, you know, and I think the fact that Lampard has come out and said, you know, that I don't care how old they are, like the best player will play, it will be meritocratic, it will be based on performances. You know, those that that sort of in and you know, kind of that really is what every academy player has wanted to hear for like the past 10 years is that, you know, you're not, you're not just going to be seen as, you know, plan B or C because we've spent 50 million pounds on someone else. If you outperform the 50 million pound player, then you're going to play, you know, that that's how it should be. Well, that's sports yeah. though. That's, that's yeah. sports across the yeah. board. It doesn't matter how old you are. If you're good enough, you're good enough. If yeah. you're better than the person in front of you, you should be the one that's, yeah. the, the, and that's the, that's as people, you know, as fans, as supporters, as humans that wa- look to sports, that's the beautiful thing about sports that we all see that it's the best guy for the job has the job, you know, 
and and that's what we th- that's what you hope that sports is and in in in, in 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 some cases on some teams it's not like that for obvious reasons uh you know it it didn't you know in Callum Hudson Odoi's case it, I would assume so it didn't matter how good he is he was never going to displace Eden Hazard um right i don't think he yeah he, yeah that was that was, that was never going to happen I mean, he would have to be as good as Eden Hazard, shit, for that to happen. Yeah. And then, then that's the real question. He would have to be yeah. as good as Hazard. Then we would see from there. But either way, I mean, like, I, I don't know. I, it, it just seems like, you know, that yeah, that, that maybe Lampard did have a huge role. But, 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 but there's a thing with it, with, with Kalamata and Adoy that I, I, uh, that I never understood why people give him gave him shit. Uh, you know, what was he asking for? I want to play, um, and I want some guarantees that I'm going to play. And if I'm not going to play, I'm not going to rot on the bench just because. My skills have shown that I'm good enough to play. Why am I not playing? And um, he's, you know, I, he's seen, like, historically. I mean, he, I always use Ruben Loftus-Cheek's you know, career at Chelsea as an example. He was kept from the age, I think, of like 17, 18 to 20, 21 at the club for three seasons. And in those three seasons, he played 1,200 minutes of football in the first team. That's 400 minutes a season. That's about, I mean, four, four and a half games or whatever. Yeah, shit. I mean, every game is about, let's, let's do round up. Every game is 100 minutes. So he played four games a season. Yeah, for, for three years. And, and this is a guy who... You know, at 17, was physically ready to play Premier League football. Yeah. So if you're looking at, at someone who has the physique of, you know, I, I mean, he was like the size of Michael Ballack when he was 17, you know, not being given minutes, you know, particularly during some of the seasons. I mean, that, that Mourinho season where Matic and Fabregas played every week. Yeah. Despite the fact that they were absolutely atrocious near yeah. enough every other game and Ruben couldn't get a game. A lot of these young players have seen that growing up and they still have this in their head that Chelsea, doesn't matter how good you are as a young player, they will not, you know, the managers that they've picked will not pick you over an established professional. Joe, because, real, real, yeah. real quick, I want to, I want to, I want I want to pause right there for a second. All right. Listen to what you just said, that these players are seeing Ruben Loftus-Cheek, who by 17 years old had the physique, the body, to be able to compete in the Premier League, right? They're yeah. seeing that. Okay. Now, let's take on. Let's look at it from another angle, right? To I'm mean, I'm kind of taking this angle to 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 back up my point here. Joe is a guy not paid professional to be in the football world. It is getting this information. How is he getting this information? He's having communications. What do you think? Moving back to Ruben Loftus Cheek. What do you think? You think none of the players? are hitting up Ruben Loftus-Cheek on WhatsApp or calling him or going to his house, going to his apartment and saying, yo, what the fuck is going on? You're good. You're good as just everybody else. What do you think those conversations are like? And then they're walking away from those conversations going, shit, I'm at this point in my life not as good as Ruben. And if he's getting treated like that, what do you think I'm going to get treated like? That's just, I mean, we don't have to be industry insiders. We don't have to be somebody as connected as Joe to be able to see, to, to kind of assume that that those conversations are not being had. Like, 
you mean, know, you I can hundred percent understand Callum Hudson Odoi situation when he's going, All right, here we go. I'm in the position that Ruben Loftus cheek was in and I got William and Pedro in front of me and they're playing like shit. I mean, I get it. We all get it that everybody can't play every position unless you're, you know, every minute unless your name is Cesar Aspelacueta. But, you know, something's got to give. And I, I, I don't know. Like, when people were giving shit to Callum Hudson Odoi, I didn't understand. Joe, back to you. I mean, I cut you off. Yeah, I'm I mean, I mean just, just sort of finishing off that thought and, and taking it to sort of the conclusion. Okay. I think, I, I, you know, I've been a huge backer of Ruben for probably, you know, since he was 17. I think I, I wrote one of the first articles on him saying that he would be a Chelsea first-team player. Um, when he was 17, I think he had the tools. But it's even it's even as used to all young players. I mean, you know, you have to remember we've had Kevin De Bruyne. We've had yep. Mohamed Salah. We've had Romelu Lukaku yep. at the club as young players. And even they, who have now gone on to, you know, reach the, the heights of the game that you would love an academy player to, to get in it. Maybe not Lukaku, but definitely, you know, Salah and, and De Bruyne. If they cannot convince a manager that they're worth playing ahead of a senior pro, what chance does a, a you know, an 18-year-old coming out of a, an under-18 side have? You know, it's, it yep. has to be completely soul-destroying. You know, you've seen Kevin De Bruyne, who I imagine in training was fantastic and has obviously gone on to be the player that he's become. If he can't get minutes ahead of some players who were frankly not as good as him in the first team, and this whole you know experience over meritocracy stuff that we've had for a number of years is still in action, then yeah, sure, you know we have to have questions of of the club, and I think that's the the mentality. It, it's healthy healthy scepticism is what Hudson Odoi has had in this situation, and I'm I'm obviously I'm very glad that it seems to be have been resolved and resolved in the right manner. Um, but people criticising him, it's his life, it's his career, you know. And if he wants to go, you know, if, if a club as big as Bayern Munich are interested in you, then you obviously you're, you're going to explore that. Even you if Chelsea have is your to take that club. into consideration. You got to exactly. look into it. I don't blame him at all. I don't blame. And it just bothered me because at the end of the day, if you were in Callum Hudson Odoi's shoes, not a single human being looking at it from a business perspective, looking at it as your career's perspective, would say, oh, no, I'm just going to sit here on the bench and, you know. I'm, I mean, his just wages alone. You have, you have, you have wages alone. Where he's like, oh, no, I'm just going to be happy to sit here making whatever he's making now, uh, you know, on his wages that he is now, what, 20, 30, 40, 50? And then you have Bayern Munich telling you, not only we're going to, Pay you your. Not only we're we gonna give you a, the ten, we're gonna give you an ungodly amount of wages, and we're gonna play you. I mean, what would you do? Like, yeah. you're at the very minimum. You're gonna entertain those ideas. Like, come on, man. Like, I don't know. Like, that's that's my perspective. I, I don't know. Oh shit! I'm about to get a thunderstorm, a lightning storm here. Uh, do 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 do. What do we do? Okay, everybody. If for whatever reason the podcast ends right here, right now, without me asking questions, no, it's not because of anything other than there's a lightning storm. And yesterday there was a power, you know, lightning hit and the internet went out. This is through Skype. I am not in Denmark and Joe's not here. So the only way we can communicate is through the internet. So if this podcast ends right here, it's because of lightning and whatever. All right. So moving forward. Joe, we've asked a lot of questions, um, and we're coming to the end here. I've already got your expectations. Um, I already got 
pretty much knocked out. Um, continuing with the academy, who I mean, who are some of the players that you're looking at that that you think that Lampard will be looking at to pull directly from the academy and give an opportunity to the first team guys? Like I'm talking about, like outside of Gilmore, everybody has him pegged as the next guy. Uh, guys like you know, for example, guys like Castillo. Who I just found, or I recently found out when he was on uh, the Alex Goldberg podcast is Dominican, and there's a huge, uh, n- you know, Dominican community in uh, in the Netherlands. So, you know, guys like my Platano Power brother, there's uh, the uh, notification from Nini. He just put up a video. Who uh, who else do you think is you know coming gonna come th- from the academy, and uh, and maybe you know throw their hat into the ring into the first team few names um for people that that like watching academy football i think over the next two three years um this this crop that are coming through potentially is is one of the best that chelsea have produced and i don't say that lightly i'm, I'm taking the opinions of of people who watch you football for a living who work at football manager for example wait, wait, um, so you think there's other there's because i i, I want to make sure i understand this correctly yeah we're and this this crop that's coming through, which we're ta- that's came through, the Mason Mount, the Reese mm-hmm. James, the Callum Hudson Adoy, the Tammy Abrahams. We're looking at four guys that have made it to the first team, yeah. And one guy that might be one of the best players in the world, Callum Hudson Adoy, in in the eventual future. So what you're saying is, there's a crop behind those four guys that's yeah. even better than a than than a guy that might be one of the best players in the world amongst yeah. the best players in the world holy shit yeah um it's it it sounds quite hyperbolic um but it sounds I mean, crazy joe is... it sounds fucking crazy and if anybody yeah. else other and if anybody else was saying it i wouldn't believe him but but since you're saying it i have to believe you so from from the under 18s at the moment there's there's a midfielder called Tino Andrin. Um, he is over the summer. He's he's grown like a significant amount. He is like a classic Chelsea central midfielder. He reminds me a little bit of of a Ruben Loftus cheek type oh, player. Yeah. Very kind of tall, elegant on the ball. He's got an absolutely unbelievable strike on him. Like he, I think a couple of times last season he scored from sort of twenty, thirty, thirty-five yards. You know, like on more than one occasion. Great strike on him, great engine, you know, capable of playing as a 10, capable of playing as a box-to-box player. I've seen him play deeper for the club. He is one that I think potentially will captain the FA Youth Cup team this season. Um, if he's if he's sort of in the squad, I think he'll be the captain. Um, below him, just sort of this group now that's moving into the under-17, so potentially might be in the FA Youth Cup. You've got a guy called uh, Miles Park-Harris, who's a central midfielder as well. Um, it's a bit of a lazy comparison with, with Ruben Loftus Cheek, but I mean they, you know, if you look at them at the same age, it's it's a little bit like watching almost the same player. You know, Miles is a little bit stockier. He's not as tall as Ruben. He's got a little bit more of a stockier frame. I think potentially he'll he'll kind of be similar sized player to sort of a Michael Essien. Very very technically gifted, very aggressive, lovely uh, lovely balance on the ball, lovely technique. You know these sorts of things that you see from a lot of. Uh, a lot of Chelsea's kind of midfielders. Um, 
he from that under 17 group is my is my favorite under 17 at the moment but it's because he reminds me a little bit of Michael Essien, a little bit of Ruben. He's kind of got Jesus that nice balance of Christ. size and technique. Um, Lewis Bape is the under, I think he might be the under 17s captain at the moment. Um, sort of, uh, if if Jorginho could run, then that probably would be my description of Lewis Bape. Very, very aggressive, typical English kind of scrappy player. But when he's on the ball, like he is such a real kind of classical conductor of, of midfield, someone that I really, really like as well. Um, and the, yeah, I mean, there's a couple. There's a few others that I can go on about. There's there, more. So. Ballo, there's a oh. there's an Austrian kid we've got who's he's fantastic. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll leave it. I'll leave it with 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 those with those three. Um, oh I mean, I, I try and I try and let them sort of establish themselves over the FA Youth Cup before I kind of go too big on them. But the the ones really to keep an eye on probably for this season because he he'll be in the under 18s group will be. Tino, uh, Tino Andrian. Um, you know, I think if you think Gilmore's a, a really sort of good player to watch, I, I think Andrian is, I think he might be about 6'1", six, 6'2", six, now already. And he's, How he's just old is 18, he? 18, just turned 18, I think. Oh my God. Um, I, I've seen, I've seen a number of games from him. I've seen clips. I've heard people who have coached him, people who watch him like every week. And he's the one that they're very excited about. He's in, and this summer as well, he, he looks like he's, He's kind of had that sort of hit as a teenager now where he's done a bit of gym work and he's filled out of it as well. So now, you know, he's gone from, um, he was never kind of like lanky and gangly, but he's he's gone from being quite a, a tall lean kid to someone who's got, at least for a footballer, quite a decent bit of size in him as well. So Jesus I think Christ. he's kind of realised that, you know, put on a bit of a uh, bit of muscle mass, bit of weight, doesn't look like he's, he's lost any of his, uh, any of his, his, his kind of agility or athleticism. But I think he, he for me, from this under 18 group is is one to watch because I, I you know looking at from this under 18s and under 17s group there's there's there are so many really really good players to look at so you know for people that have an interest in academy football and, and watch the FA Youth Cup then you know you over probably the next two years you're going to be in for a bit of a treat because I think this is this is you know probably one of the best Chelsea groups that have been produced and I'm going back to that sort of 2014-15 season where Chelsea won the uh, UEFA youth league you know with uh you know i think that that team's now produced like six or seven full internationals so i'm thinking that this team potentially is, is up there with them maybe we'll surpass them jesus christ joe jesus christ oh my god um i, I we're you're saying that there's another group that potentially is better than the group that we have now yeah or that's on the first team now which i'm talking about mount Reese James, Callum Hudson Odoi, Tammy Abraham, with one of the guys think that you know that he's spoken about that he could be one of the best players in the world in a few in a few years. And you're seeing there's a group just to, just to give it some context that there was a game that Chelsea the would have been our under 16, so they've now become under 17s with a lot of these players in played Arsenal last season, and I think we had so like youth internationals. I think ten of our starting eleven like start for their country. So, you know, it's it's pretty it's a pretty big level in terms of like national quality. You know, they, they, we had, I mean, Arsenal have got a lot of youth internationals in that group as well, and that Arsenal crop is meant to be, you know, at, at kind of friends who follow Arsenal. They're really excited about. It. I think we we really we beat them like four or five one or something like that. Jesus. So this this is a group who, you know, uh, not just you know at the club but but domestically as well. You know, you've got guys playing for England, playing for. 
you know, uh, you've got guys playing for Austria and Holland and, you know, Ian Matz and all these sorts of players. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's 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 a group that I think is has got the potential to be one of the best we've had. Oh, but this is, the thing, you know, the people that, that always look at the, the academy that Chelsea have is that they're consistently producing, you know, incredible academy talent. I mean, if you go right down the age groups, so like under nines, tens, elevens, you know, like you're looking at, these kids going into international tournaments and like beating Barcelona 4-0 in the final and stuff like that. I mean, it's not, it's not uncommon now that our, you know, 10, 11, 12 year olds will just go and just smash Real Madrid, smash Barcelona, smash Bayern Munich. You know, they're, they're just exceptionally well coached. We, we seem to have a really good catchment area of players that we seem to be able to spot them, you know, at a very young age. Most of the guys who were graduating into the first team Callums and these guys have been at the club since they were eight years old. So they've been spotted yeah. at like seven, you know, so you know, talent at that age that then, you know, consistently develops through to really good under 18, under 21, under 23 players. And now hopefully we're going to see if start, you know, a few of them at least stepping up into the uh, first thing picture. So, I mean, I mean, as somebody that loves the business aspect of the game, it's frustrating when you're telling me this, you know, this, and if you know this, people within the building know this. This is a resource that the first team hasn't been tapping into. That I mean, it could have been saving the first team a ton of money if they were just consistently tapping into the academy over the years. You, we go back to the $1 billion spent since 2013. How much of that money could have been? I mean, just keep it at a billion dollars or a billion pounds, whatever. If Hello, yeah. If you would have been using that money to buy top tier players and not buying these garbage players that we bought and just filling in those swapping those garbage players with just the academy players, we would how how much better off would we be? I mean fucking the, hell. The crazy thing is, and I think this this is where people seem to at least sort of misunderstand me for for sort of being somebody who's very pro academy. You know, it, it's for me, it's not about seeing Chelsea's, you know, 18-year-olds playing every single week instead of, you know, Eden Hazard, Diego say Costa. It. Say it. I know exactly what you're going to say. Go ahead, say it, because you it's, and I say the same thing. Yeah. It's about, you know, if you get one season of a 20-year-old who's been out on loan and has come back to the club, and let's say he he's a backup left-back, that means that, that you you don't have to buy Emerson Palmieri, who costs £32 million. Pounds. Mm-hmm. You know, how how often does a backup fullback really play in a season okay if someone gets injured then yeah fair enough but there have there have been positions that we've bought specifically bought squad players Danny Drinkwater um Palmieri Zappacosta that is what's that that's 100 million pounds yep you know in on three players who probably have less than 100 combined games to Chelsea you know and and the point that I'm making is particularly when you produce players, let's say, let's take Ola Aina, because he's a very good example of someone that they let go, you know, far too soon with an option to buy. This is a guy who's an international for Nigeria. This is a guy who can play right back and left back comfortably, play both wing back spots. Even if he's only at the club for two seasons and we sell him for 10, 15 million pounds, whatever it is, that's two seasons that you're not spending 30 million pounds and then another 30 million pounds to, to basically have a backup player. You know, we waste so much money on backup players that, could be could be filled by a single academy player for the season. You know, it's it's not about producing Lionel Messi, although that would be incredible if we had someone that good come through the academy. It's not even really about producing guaranteed first team starters every week. Again, that's absolutely fantastic. 
where you get the bang for the buck, it's the squad players, it's the backups, it's the guys that you don't have to pay money for. So you can focus spending on yep. the top players. Exactly. You know, that, that Ruben has come through and now is sort of kind of establishing himself as, as a really kind of top player at Chelsea. You know, but, you know, that will be the the kind of the every now and then some player, Callum maybe comes through and does that. Every now and then we get one player comes through and establishes himself as a really top player at Chelsea. Someone capable of helping Chelsea win league titles, capable of going really deep in Europe. Reese James may be another example. That's three players that we've got in there over the past couple of years that, that maybe have a, a the ability to play for Chelsea every single week. But it's it's all about bringing in, in people who are squad players, even for two, three seasons, even one season. One season having a backup player in midfield rather than going out and spending money on Danny Drinkwater, rather than going out and spending money on Bakayoko, rather than going out and maybe buying Kovacic, although I think he's been pretty good this preseason. You know, th- these are just some examples of, of players that we've gone out and, and bought. I mean, even, um, you know, we, we mentioned it a little bit earlier in the call, you know, there was a time where Dom Solanke was very highly thought yep. of at Chelsea, you know, and then instead of giving him the opportunity to play, they went and got Pato in, I think it was, and Falcao and whatever. Yep. You know, on so we're wasting, we're throwing so much money away on players who are not really significantly improving the first team. And it's kind of watering the quality down of the rest of the rest of the players. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a business model that can work for Chelsea if they actually look to create pathways and promote these younger players into squad roles doesn't have to be first in players into squad positions. They play 10, 15 games a season. All it means is, is that that 30 million that you spend on someone, 30 million on another, you know, there's, there's 70, 80, 90 million pounds a season to be spent on one player. And that one player is a game changer, is a significant player Jesus to your team. And, and, that, and that has to be the strategy that Chelsea look at going forward because, you know, even, you know, if, uh, let's say, Conor Gallagher, for example, you know, as, as, a, as a, someone who comes on for the last 10, 15 minutes, keeps it entirely, runs around, crashes into tackles, gives you 150% effort for 15 minutes. You know, he's not on 100 grand a week like Danny Drinkwater. He's not 40 million pounds like Danny Drinkwater. I'm fairly certain he can do Danny Drinkwater's job. And you he's know, free. He's essentially free. free. He's free. You know, and it's it's that. It's, it's, it's changing the mentality. It's about focusing on adding real difference makers to the squad. Because you know it, it's a uh, we're not we're not a club now that's spending you know as much as we did sort of before financial fair play. So we have to be very very accurate with with what we spend, and we have to stop wasting money on players who don't significantly contribute to the team. You know we've got some we've got a lot of money from from this summer and then this January window probably that they're not going to be able to spend. So you're coming into next summer with an absolute ton of money. Hmm. So, uh, Joe, let me ask you a question. Like, it, I mean, shit, if... if... Hey, you're not, you know, you're not going for the... You're not buying the backups. You're, you're starting to buy the cream of the of the talent out there again. And actually, yeah. that, that has to be the approach we make because, you know, if we look at the centre-forward position, next summer, we one million percent need to buy an elite striker. But we're not going to be able to buy someone. You know, an elite striker now probably is a minimum of £120 million. Pounds. We're not going to be able to buy someone if we're going to have to spend... 30 million on the backup left back, 30 million on the backup right back, yep. maybe 35 million on the backup centre back. I mean, that 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 transfer kitty gets drained pretty quickly for players who are not adding anything to the first team. So it's all about focusing, focus to spend on first team players, first team upgrades, and then try and try and sort of get a, a kind of core group of players from the academy and to support those positions. I appreciate that that's, you know, you're not going to be able to sort of graduate 10 players into the first team squad, 
but drip feed two or three in every every two seasons. You know, it's 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 the Ajax model. They look to graduate two players every three seasons into the first team squad. Given how good our academy is, that shouldn't be that difficult. But you know, we'll see we'll see how things um, sort of kind of uh, end up with 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 Czech and and Lampard's sort of direction. I I mean I I just look at it like. Let's say they have three hundred to spend next year. I mean, three hundred you can easily sign. You have three hundred million to spend. You can easily sign uh, uh, Mbappe to play striker. Easily, easily. How yeah. much do you think he can go for? Two fifty. I mean, if if we have the money, and I, I would I would put a bid in for him. That and that that would be like the signal living tent at Chelsea. You know, Kylian Mbappe up top or right wing or whatever. Cho Hudson the Doy and Pulisic. There you go. That's yep. Chelsea's front three for the next ten years. Yeah, you, you you could easily sign somebody and we take okay and whoever the case might be, we would have to sign somebody like uh, Jao Felix. He's eighteen years old, nineteen years old. He went to Atletico for hundred and twenty or whatever. We'd have to yeah. be looking at somebody like that. A lot of risk, a lot of risk on an eighteen-year-old. But if we if 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 they just use the academy the right way, um. That that's all possible. We don't have to take the risk. We can afford to, you know, take the risk on Kylian Mbappe. Who would you rather take the risk on, Kylian Mbappe or Jao Felix? I'd rather yep. take my risk Mbappe, on Kylian yeah. Mbappe. And that's all possible if we use the academy correctly. If we're not signing Danny Drinkwater, if we're not signing Emerson. I mean, hell, just look at the we we signed. What was it? We signed uh, the the window where we signed Drinkwater. Who else did we get in that window? We got Barkley, right? Was it that? Oh yeah, that 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 was a terrible window. It was Barkley, whatever that 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 window. Let's look at the the summer and in, in, in the winter that window. If you would eliminate all those players that we signed, because we didn't sign any starters that window. If I if I understand correctly, if I remember correctly, did we? I, I, mean, don't, I don't think so either, unless someone really obvious has slipped my mind. Yeah. So if we didn't sign any starters, you replace all those the guys that we brought in. I mean, you can argue that Barkley is a starter, but whatever. But you don't sign any starters, and you use all that money. We could who the hell could we have signed? And we spent what? Probably a hundred and fifty million. We could have brought in somebody for a hundred and fifty million, easy. Yeah, and that person exactly. would have been a starter with no risk whatsoever. No risk, because if you're bringing in Mbappe, you know exactly what you're going to get. You're going to get an elite player, barring injury. You're going to get an elite player. And you're good with that player for X amount of years. And if you have to sell him, you're going to for sure get your money back. I don't understand. I don't know why. Do you know why, Joe, that this, this, they've been, the, the club has been so, and I, Joe, we're going to have to wrap it up here because we've been on for a minute. Um, and we're going to have to wrap it up. You, we've gone through a ton of things. But do you know why the club hasn't implemented this strategy? Why they've been so, against using this strategy to to be short on this one it's it's primarily because the club themselves haven't had a sporting philosophy for a number of years all they've done mm. is assumed and, and molded themselves to the identity of the managers that they've had so if you look at Chelsea's kind of permanent appointments you know from 2012 they've gone from you know Andre vs Boris to uh, so back to Jose Mourinho, to I think Conte, to sorry. I mean, you're looking at two, maybe three completely distinct styles, completely distinct ways of playing. Therefore, the people that you buy, or the people that you look to buy in the squad, because it's not a club mandate. You know, we want we want to play this style of football. 
we want these kinds of players. You're buying, you know, different types of players for different roles. And then next season, the, you know, the, the, the requirements of the manager completely change. So you're left with some guy who's you know, never going to play on a five-year contract Jesus now. Christ. You know, and it's, it's because, yeah, you know, and, and this is why I was kind of, I wouldn't say I get in arguments with people, but it, it irritates me when people always go, oh, yeah, you know, the manager should control the transfers. No, no. I mean, they really, they really shouldn't. You know, the, the average, I think the average lifespan of a Premier League manager now is about 18 months. No, so, yeah, yeah. Unless to, you're signing Alex Ferguson, unless you're committed yeah. to a dude like Alex Ferguson, which the club knows if they are, if they're not. Yeah. Unless yeah, you're I mean, doing that, you the club should be buying, a, getting a manager to fit their players, to fit their best asset. I mean, it is another thing that I always complain about. And, and Joe, I'm sorry I took over this spot. But a manager, if you look at it value-wise, a manager will, never has the same value as a player. No. Never. Never. You we we dump sorry did as great as he did and and it's been coming out whatever your opinion is of sorry sorry was dumped on the street right to in hopes to keeping Callum Hudson Odoi if Callum Hudson Odoi is sold right now what is it 30 40 right yeah his value would be 30 or 40 so what essentially what what we're saying is that sorry doesn't have the same evaluation as Callum Hudson Odoi I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I know I'm winning, but I might not be going about, you know, describing that situation the right way. But that's what it is. I mean, Jose Mourinho was dumped at United. Why? Because the players didn't like him. Okay, so let's look at it. Who's who would you rather lose? Paul Pogba, who, if you were to sell him today, he would be bring your business in a hundred million dollars. You would sell who else? Who else didn't like uh, Mourinho on that team? X amount of players where you start putting their value where does Mourinho's value stack up against these players it's not even going to be close nowhere near that I don't know I don't know Joe I don't know yeah no, but, I mean you're, you're completely right it's you know if, if a manager lasts two years he's you know he's been quite quite lucky these days so yeah. you know the fact that you're sinking you know lots I mean even even someone let's look at Jorginho for example you know if you believe sorry he can only play in one system play one way so you know if Lampard's now come in and if that really was the case then we've sunk nearly 60 million pounds into a player who is now redundant you know yep. just from a that's just a, a straight philosophical standpoint thankfully that doesn't look to be the case but this is what happens when you give give a manager you know kind of the complete authority over the profile of signings that you make or you you completely try and adhere to their philosophy rather than your own, is you end up with, with a squad like Chelsea's at the moment. This squad isn't really suited to doing any one thing. You know, it, it needs to have an identity put back into it. You know, you've, you've seen it chained under Mourinho and Conte and, and, and Sari. You know, it's, it's a lot of different inputs and a lot of different voices and a lot of different opinions on what that, uh, you know, what that squad makeup should be. So you're just left with this sort of hodgepodge of hodgepodge. odds and ends and people who don't really fit systems and, maybe a little bit too overly specific for, for certain managers, um, which is why, again, you know, just to sort of just finalise this, it's it's making sure that Petr Cech and Frank Lampard have a an agreed profile of what they're looking for. So if we buy a centre-back, we want them to be this. If we buy a midfielder, we want these traits. If it's a forward, I want them to look like this. You know, and, and, and having that agree with the club going forward is, is crucial. 
Yeah. Um, because I, I think at times we've, we've been so far led by managers into sort of styles of player and players in general that, that when they leave, you know, they don't become redundant. But I mean, the the, the usefulness of them or the, the utility that they bring is is very much diminished. So, yeah, if, if the club have a bit more of a direction going forward and a bit more steer and a bit more of a clue of what they want to see, I think hopefully what, what we'll see is is a lot of the, the deadwood being trimmed from, trimmed from the current squad. And I think hopefully the signings going forward should be a little bit more intelligent. I hope so too. Joe, we're going to wrap it up here. Um, if anybody, I can't imagine there, I have many listeners that don't follow you on Twitter um, or don't, you know, haven't seen you anywhere. Joe, how can they find you on Twitter? What's your Twitter handle? So Twitter is at uh, Joe Tweedy. And if you, I suppose if you want to hear more from me throughout the season, I'll be on a podcast, a new podcast called The Chessie Hour. Um, probably every week. Congratulations on that, Joe. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, part of the whole Touchline Fracar uh, network. And yeah, those guys have uh, been good enough to set up some club-specific pods. So yeah, catch me on that. Sweet. So we're going to be able to hear more of Joe. All right, everybody. Um, I know I didn't li- get to all the questions. There were some questions about, uh, like for example, Kurt Zuma, you know, questions about this, that, or the other. But I feel like we got... We got a lot covered, um, and you know, hopefully Joe can make some more time, uh, sometime throughout the season, and we can get him on for you know to get those questions answered and others. So, but everybody, this is the end of the interview. All right, all right, all right, all right. We're back. I'm back. That was Joe Tweedy again. Uh, the legend, the man. The absolute monster that is Joe Tweedy. Um, so 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 lucky that I can I can call him my friend. Um, I wonder if he would call me his friend. <laughs> so. <laughs> That was Joe Tweedy. So I mean, he guys, he kicked straight facts, straight knowledge. Um, I wasn't lying, man. I never looked at the game like that. What what all the information he dropped on how, uh, the game is looked at at the professional level, man. I've I've never I I don't know, man. I I don't know if I'm just late to the game, or if other people look at the game like that but it's just a perspective that i've never even considered so thank you again to joe tweedy if you guys are not following him on twitter make sure you do make sure you do i'll have that in the notes of the podcast so you can find his twitter handle there um that's it for today that's all i got I will come back again to you guys this Sunday, this Sunday, this Sunday, next Monday, next Monday coming, which is August, August 5th, August 5th. So August 5th, brand new episode of the podcast and August starts, you know, it's going to be one podcast, um, it's been one podcast every Monday. Come August, vacation's over. It's time to get down to the nitty gritty. And it's going to be podcast after podcast after podcast. So 
Looking forward to that. I will talk to you guys again soon. Remember that I love each and every single one of you. Remember that whatever you inspired us aspire to do in life, that I am right behind you. I am in your corner um, supporting what you do as long as it's positive. As long as it's positive. Don't come with no fucking negative shit thinking I'm going to be supporting you and getting your back. I'm not with that shit. But if it's positive, if it's adding, uh, if it's putting smiles on faces, if it's putting asses in seats, if it's doing whatever it is that, you know, you want to do, that you need to do to make your dreams come true i have your back always 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 and i believe in you i absolutely believe in you so i will talk to you guys again soon um that's it i love you have a great day enjoy the rest of your day your boys out big kiss be damn if I'm not one You talking about the hottest in the city Most influential rapping That's niggas and I'm the top one Me and M knocked down doors for y'all That was locked once I know they might never get me I still put on for the city Like the lines first round pit me I ain't been fucking, I've been too busy I got two phones, they both business I got fake ones trying to end me I got real ones gonna defend me Like a fucking co-defendant I got that life on my pendant I'm conditioned to do the distance And I just set up the pensions Family sell like my intentions Been balancing, trying to keep my company With the girls who want to keep me company You know the ones who claim they over me But would much rather to be under me is confident and been through too much just to be done with me and you know that shit gets stressful right shit taxing the same thing that got wesley snipes and you know how i'm rocking rocking never's presley white you know how life reeling all highlights like we're sitting on top of museum ceilings no more resisting if you ain't on my frequency you out of tune and not tuned in in the break the unbreakable escape the unescapable so you push your fucking limits you don't even know what's capable fuck that shit that you believe in i believe in me talking on they phones and pc like they that PCP, bitch, I spit that easy E face to face, back DVD. I don't got no time for hanging out and all that ETC. Just cut the check, CTC. God body, my physique. I can look inside your eyes and know exactly what you mean. Fuck you mean. Energy, the first language that I speak. No facade, I belong in the palace of Versailles with a queen by my side. In this hot girl summer, I'm just trying to find a wife. Visualizing from every island that's on Hawaii with my team on each side. Like, <laughs> with the last laugh, like Kawhi. And you know that you that one when you beat all the other eyes I keep one for planet at home and the other one on swivel though Gotta keep them both cause this shit get way too pivotal All the work is analog, all the payment digital When tempers tend to flare up, I'm the one to be cool since preschool I know it's ones that's been rocking with me dog since the prequel Just be cool, I know your favorite one dog. I'm about to drop the sequel Nigga this just the preview, done Strike to claim it, a strike to claim it And